0: Brazil, where our hearts were entertaining June, we stood beneath an amber moon, and softly murmured someday soon, we kissed,
1: and clung together. Hello, welcome to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast, for Moonlight... My name is Tom Chick. I'm here with Christian Rinzeliski. What kind of dude gives other dudes nicknames? And we have a Moonlight tagline, maybe two, could be as many as three, specially written and contributed to this podcast by Kelly Wand.
2: It's like the TV series, but Money Penny plays Sybil Shepard.
1: <laughs> I don't understand that one at all. Oh, because oh, Naomi Harris is Money Penny. All right. Kelly do you have one that I don't have to think about so much?
2: It's like loving, but with dudes.
1: I like that. You know, that would that would look good on a poster. I'm okay yeah, with that. Yeah, that's not bad, actually. Yeah, it's not bad. Do you bad. have one that's, that's funnier, that's not quite so good?
2: Uh, I related to the character physically in the first two acts. <laughs> I guess you have to know me to get that. <laughs> yes, or that's very made. good,
1: Kelly. I like that, yeah. Uh, and do you – do I dare ask, is there a fourth?
2: Uh, uh, the, look What's cooking!
1: It's like a romantic comedy direction. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it al- – <laughs> Kelly One when I ask you for alternate titles, that would be appropriate for that. So, real yeah. quick, Kelly do you have any alternate titles for this movie? Um – Two black
2: dudes
1: and – i have never again yes ending you. That's that's yeah, that's the last yes and you ever get from me. It's over between you and me. This thing we had going, I'm done. This bully's about to take a seat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's Like for a John Hughes version.
1: Well let's do a podcast on Moonlight by starting with Dingus telling the audience a little bit about what the movie is without spoiling it, because maybe maybe you haven't seen Moonlight, maybe it's not out yet where you live. Uh, so, Dingus, without spoiling it for those folks, give us a little oh. basic information.
3: All right. This week we saw Moonlight, a 2016 American drama movie about manhood. It was written and directed by Barry Jenkins mm. based on the play In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Tyrell Alvin McCraney. It stars Alex R. Hibbert, Ashton Sanders, Trevante Rhodes, um Gosh darn it!
1: Good luck, pingus uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think Marshala, maybe. Yeah,
3: it's Marshala. It's Marshal Ali, uh, Janelle uh, mm-hmm. Manet, Andre Hillard, and Naomi Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I and I went over and over it this afternoon, trying to make sure I had Marshala. But it's it, you know, it looks like Maharshala, but it's
1: just Marshala.
3: You just have to say. Well, it. you
1: should see his, his actual birth name. There's a whole bunch of extra syllables
3: <laughs> afterwards. Oh, really? Stuff.
1: It could be really? way worse, Dingus, yeah. Yeah, right.
3: So anyway, yeah, it it, it just – it should roll off the tongue, but I had a hard time. Um, uh, anyway, Moonlight is rated R. Well, uh, go ahead, Dingus. Explain why this would be rated R according to the MPAA. All right, it's rated R for some sexuality, drug use, brief violence, and
1: language throughout. I think that about you covered. Think, Kelly, one. oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, Doug. Oh. Is there anything they missed there, Kelly Wan, that seems pretty thorough, that, that parents should be warned about if they're thinking of taking their 16 or younger children to see Moonlight?
2: Which they should, but I would have added some aging, black characters interacting, and thematic elements.
1: <laughs> Not even some thematic elements, just, just flat-out thematic elements. All no of, them. To the amount of them. All thematic <laughs> elements. Okay. Growing
2: up, kids aren't ready to handle the growing up themes, <laughs> and um, –
1: Moonlight. Well, Moonlight is a limited release, so I can't really give you any relevant information about the box office. That would uh, just make something up. It's the internet. we like a fake. Moonlight business. has made twelve million dollars. That's actually true. Uh, <laughs> it's an A twenty four release. That's also true. It is out at this point when we're recording, which is uh, right around the turn of the year. Uh, it's out in about seven hundred some on theaters. So there you go. That's the box office information that I have for you. Critically, Moonlight is better than Fury Road. It is at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, whereas Fury Road only 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-oh. Now, always if we look at Metacritic... What's that, Kelly Wand? Always a bridesmaid.
2: Fury Road is always a bridesmaid. Yeah, because it's 97. <laughs> and I also I think that was the score for bridesmaids. So it's, it's, it's a, it's
1: all. Uh, if we look at Metacritic, which is the average rating from various reviews... Uh, And I actually, when I saw this, I was like, wait a minute. Did Metacritic change their system? Because I had to go through and verify how they – it's at 99 on Metacritic. Wow. Which, considering that, you know, some some of these sites actually do use scores, uh, you know, for places like uh, the New York Times or whatever that doesn't use a score, Metacritic kind of works with their editors and they have a system where they slap a number onto it. But a lot of these sites still do use, uh, you know, 7 on a 7 to 10 scale, 87%. Even with those yahoos – It comes out at ninety nine, which wow, pretty amazing. Uh, I do well. You know what? I'll save this. I wanted to read you. So when it's at that high and ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes based on forty some odd reviews, I'm really curious. Like, okay, let me read that one review that didn't like it. I want to know, okay, what what issues might someone have had with it. So once we get past the synopsis, uh, I want to read you guys from the the one negative review in the San Diego Reader. Uh for Moonlight, which has some The Armin uh, White points. guy. Uh, yeah, sorta, of, yeah, yeah. But Armin and White Hurricane. I think is is uh his the charge against him is that he likes things that no one else likes, I believe.
2: Yeah. This he is likes. some
1: hold out this guy who did not like and he made no bones about it. This was a negative review. So I'll read you guys that later. Because I am really so the case here, of like Owen Gleiberman falling asleep during uh, Let the Right One In and not getting things right. No, I think this guy actually saw everything that happened. Uh, you know, what? let me just read it to you. It's just a paragraph. I mean, his his actual review is just a couple of paragraphs. Here is the paragraph written by a fellow named You know, I don't want I don't want to call the poor guy. The the site is the San Diego Reader. It's a publication. He calls Moonlight quote a hackneyed tale of a young black man's passage from childhood to maturity in a tough Miami neighborhood. Bullying, poverty, closeted sexuality, drug abuse, and racial strife combine to form an overworked <laughs> agenda of cultural woes that is more concerned with rubber-stamping issues than telling an original story. That's word wow. salad. Well, wow. wow. Suffocating salad. close-ups rocking chair camera work, and a few unnecessary 360-degree pans lifted from the Christopher Nolan playbook do little to elevate the visual storytelling, while the script is content to churn out one cliché after another. <laughs> so, like, uh, I, I hate the verbs he's using. I did, that's just one of those things where I'm like, wow, this guy's – well. You know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But now, I want to hear Kelly Juan how you would possibly synopsize the events oh, of this God. movie. Uh, to yeah,
3: I could not help but feel for you as I was watching this movie, Kelly. I, yeah. I could, every now and then, my brain would just skip over and think, "What's Kelly going to do?" Or Kelly
2: well, I I'll I'll look forward to it
1: because I felt the same way.
2: <laughs> Animate because this one last, as much. This
1: advice. kind of makes up, you know. It, you're not <laughs> always you're not always going to get an office Christmas party.
2: Yeah,
1: well, that was a terrible one. Are you kidding? That movie makes fun of itself. All you have to do is tell us the script.
2: Yeah. No, but the opsis for that wasn't that. Was uninspired, I thought. It, it rubber stamped too many multicultural woes. <laughs> God, I hate that review. I can't get it out of my head. It's crazy,
1: isn't it? Yeah.
2: I like reading bad writing though. Like it's instructive. It's it's good practice. It's what you said, like, what's the one naysayer's take?
1: Like, maybe yeah. he's right
2: about something. Maybe.
1: I don't know. But, yeah, that's, I don't even know what that means. Well, it's not a matter of being right or wrong. It's, this is what this guy saw. Like, he, he sat through the movie, and this is what he took away. This is what he yeah. felt he was shown, and I don't doubt he was being honest. or I, I don't think he was being disingenuous when no, he wrote it. No, I know. I just, just don't. And I am, by the way, I am comfortable. I'm completely comfortable calling the writer of this an idiot. Like, I'm okay with yeah. that. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> he's, he's saying he... rocking chair yeah, and I, I have no idea what that bit is about the Christopher Nolan. Yeah, but, but, you know, we'll, get, yeah. we'll get to our perspective on it in a minute because maybe I yeah. agree. I'm not saying that I disagree necessarily. Yeah, yeah, I I'm just it. saying he stands out amongst the, the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and maybe that's exactly what I thought. Maybe I wanted to read you guys that because that was my feeling. But mm. first, Kelly, Wan, I, do, I
3: also love Kelly Wan's phrase, the naysayers take. It sounds like a John le Carré uh, movie.
2: Mm-hmm. or a Chaucer Canterbury tale. <laughs> Shut up, Kelly. No one's interested in that.
1: I Kelly uh, I have a perfectly good reference, but you're perfectly uh, you are capable of segueing into the synopsis yourself. So so I leave it to you. Moon Lipsis,
2: <laughs> A words all little opsis.
1: <laughs> <sighs> so far so good.
2: That's that keep that in mind for this moment. <laughs> Remy from House of Cards leaves politics and joins the wire in Miami. He comes up to one of his slingers on a street corner and goes Sup dog, you feel me? The sidekicks all yeah man, business be tripping cuz house party three it's like I'm saying. Remy agrees in so many words that this is so. Meanwhile, some kids chase the smallest, best-acting kid into an abandoned house. (laughs) That's encouraging. And throw glass at him. Since this is still preferable to being with his mom, he decides to spend the night there. (laughs) His name's Little, but because of his size, all the kids call him Sharon. <laughs> Suddenly, Remy shows up and makes him go to Wendy's with him. Over. <laughs> that was it. Uh, never mind. Over burgers, Remy's all. What's your name, little man? Little doesn't say anything. Remy's all. By the way, that burger's poisoned, and you're buying lunch. Little gets depressed and stops eating. Remy's all, oh, I was just messing with you for fun. Someday you'll do it to someone. Now, come on. I want to take you home to meet my old lady. Her name's Tess or Teresa. Something with a T. Speaking of which, where you live? Little shrugs. Remy's girlfriend also takes a shine to Little, so they decide to keep him for the night. The next day, Little's all, by the way, when I shrugged yesterday, that meant my address is 480 Terrible Mom Boulevard, apartment 2, which is right here. <laughs> Suddenly, the door beside them opens, and Money Penny emerges belching. She scowls at Remy and goes, who are you? Remy's all, um my character dated that brunette girl from Deadwood? She's all, stop returning my kid! And slams the door in his face. After a <laughs> while, she opens it again, grabs Little and yanks him inside. <laughs> she forgot that part. To Little, she's all, think you a big shot now just because you got a father figure? What the hell's wrong with Tyrone here? She gestures to a black dude behind her with a needle sticking out of his arm who's hung himself. She's all... Let me tell you something, boy. You may think House of Cards is all that now, but when you a man, you're going to find that the presidency in the real world ain't just some reality show. Suddenly she realizes she forgot to slam the door and Remy's still standing there. She screams something silently and shuts the door. I thought she did shut it. Anyway, <laughs> Remy looks at Little and goes, two words, Spectre? She opens and shuts the door again. <laughs> This is already – that's more than I was hoping for. <laughs> to celebrate me saying all that, Little takes up getting beaten during soccer games. His Cuban friend Macaulay walks him home afterwards and goes, Hey, if you want to stop happening – God. Uh, hey, if you want to stop that from happening, you need to get good at this. He teaches Little how to wrestle around inconclusively and get tired. The next day – Remy teaches little how to drift off to sea. There you go. <laughs> Easy does it. Got a promise. Never let you go. He lets him go from the shoreline. Money Penny scowls and goes weak C minus. Not swimming. Boo. <laughs> She's actually unsupportive. Yeah. She's the one. Per- she just works at the San Diego Reader. <laughs> Boo. Multicultural woes. House of Todd sucks. Later at Remy's, after Little asked him something, Remy's all. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a word Z Bone uses to make Tom feel bad about his review of Halo 3. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. Yeah. I can make a joke out of that. Little saw. So. okay. And what's a squig herder? Um, yeah,
1: really? <laughs> that is so inside Kellywan. No one except Dingus will understand that. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you guys laugh; they'll think it's a joke. The name of it.
3: That's how jokes work.
2: i plain view. Yeah. Remy's all, uh, yeah, squid herder? No, I don't know. Look, the important things that a lot of people in life are going to say stuff to you, but they're full of shit, except for me. Thanks, Mr. Remy. Hey, Mr. Remy, do you sell my mom the crack that makes her so mean? Uh, hey, look. He gets up and points. Squid herders, let's bully him. <laughs> Little does it look, but Remy still tries to dive through a window and escape from this awkward conversation. <laughs> it's closed, though, so he only makes it halfway. Remy walks up to him outside, points at his body, dangling limply from the smashed window, and goes, Ha ha! That night... <laughs> wow, she's a real monster. She's mean, <laughs> and she's always... Right there. She's, she, she, Which makes her a good mom. She's, a good mom. <laughs> she's present. That night, Remy walks past some apartments, finds a parked car, and goes... Yo, listen, man, don't be selling drugs to Money Penny no more. It's making my swimming lessons with her kid feel strained. The car door opens and Money Penny gets out sneering. She's all You want to try and get a secretary job as a black woman in England after shooting James Bond?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Who you?
2: It's a rewrite. <laughs> she smokes some crack angrily and blows it back in her own face, coughing. The black guy in the car she was making out with saw. So, I thought we was in Miami. The title card's all, Shiropsis. Ten years later, a different kid named Sheropsis.
1: <laughs> what? I like you got this 3X structure going for the synopsis. Yeah, me too. I like <laughs> I'm trying to it break lot. it
2: down for the San Diego reader guy. He <laughs> <laughs> hears my explanation. Um, this is his Cliff's notes. <laughs> Ten years later, a different kid named Sharon goes to visit Money Penny in her new apartment. She's all, Well, you got any money? Sharon sighs and leaves. He tries to cross the street, but suddenly the school bully Bugsy and his sidekick show up and start pointing and laughing at him. Well, well, if it ain't that kid from soccer practice ten years ago, you got some nerve. Bugsy the bully sucks. Say it. Sharon sighs. He's all, Okay, you suck. The bullies laugh at him. They pull down their own pants and laugh at him some more until cars start running over them. Chiron shakes his head. Kids. He walks to Teresa's house and sighs again. She's all, come on, Chiron. You know we don't say hi in this house. (laughs) He didn't say hi. He's all, is Remy still in the movie? She shrugs. The bullies cackle at them through the screen door and give themselves wedgies, then look around for lockers to stuff themselves in. As Sharon shakes his head again, colleague ten years older, drives him to an ocean. They sit by it, smoke weed, and talk about nothing. I stand up beside Dingus and go, nice! <laughs> <laughs> what I did I it. do? Really... <laughs> Co-opting your culture.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so you stand on the seat. You're not going to really
1: be there. There was, a there was by the way, a, 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 an audible dingus ejaculation during this movie as well that I'll tell you about later.
2: Oh, well, getting yeah. into the character.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> Sitting on the shore, Macaulay's all, man, I've been here a long time. I think I'm from Cuba. I was a wild little shorty man just like you. One time I was running around with no shoes on. Moon was out. I run by this old lady. I was running howling. Kind of a fool. So, lady, she all uh, running around fishing in a boat of light in moonlight. Black people look blue. That's, that's what I'm gonna call you, moonlight. Then I told her my name was Macaulay. She exploded. I didn't see much of her after that. Sharon's all cool story, bro. Not being sarcastic either. I mean, that's vaguely interesting. Macaulay kisses him. Then I think off screen, he puts some seaweed in Sharon's pants. Sharon yawns tiredly. He's all I never done nothing like this before. Macaulay's all at some point, Sharon, you gotta decide for yourself who you gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. I look over at Gus Van Sant sitting beside me and go, That's what Tyrion told Jon Snow one time. He's all I want to remake Psycho two in black and white. <laughs> Janet Lee rolls her eyes, Hitchcock zooms <laughs> in on one. <laughs> <laughs> uh there's the moonlight off this. Sharon stares out from the screen at me and Gus Bensett in disbelief. Then walks into a classroom and hits Jaden with
1: a chair. That is where Dingus went. Oh! <laughs> and the, the reason I know is because I would have probably done that if Dingus hadn't preempted me with it. Because that, that was a pretty like. Ouch you moment. hit him with a chair. When he was walks up behind him and just smacks him with a chair, Dingus went oh! Like it was yeah. like because a surprising moment and uh, yeah, I was taken by it too. But we got an. Because actual...
2: he doesn't see it coming too. Like that yeah. guy's going. From just being bored in a classroom? Well, and the way
1: it's shot, too, it shows the impact. Like, they use a fake chair or whatever, but actually, it's not like they cut away before it hits them. You actually see the poor actor getting hit with some, I guess, breakaway chair. It looks pretty, like, you you see how painful that that looks, yeah. Sometimes you got to do it, though. I'm with
2: Sharon on this. Ten years later, Sharon's taken over the job of selling drugs to his mom. For professional reasons he now goes by the name of Black. He also has biceps. He drives home one night, then counts some the money his friend brings him. As he finishes he's all <laughs> <laughs> It's his buddy. It's his black friend. Hey,
3: counts some money his friend brings, his him, friend that's brings awesome.
2: him. As he fi- it's Connor. As he finishes
3: yeah, It is Connor. And it's Shyron, not uh Kelly
2: What? Good, good. As he finishes, he's all, by the way, this money's poison and you're buying lunch. The friend stares at him. Sharon's all, uh, someone taught me that joke as a kid. Guess you had to be there. Suddenly his phone rings. Sharon's all, What? Pleasant fellow with a mustache, kind of like Isaac on Love Boats, all, hey, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? What just happened? <laughs> Jessica Lang, Ted Lang, that guy. It's Jessica Lang's husband on Love Boat. He's all. He has a mustache. They all know each other. Hey, Sharon, it's me, the actor playing Macaulay as an adult. Listen, I'm sorry about that awkwardness at lunch ten years ago, but I ain't sorry about telling you that story about me screaming at the old woman. That's some of my mediocre early work. Sharon's all, who? Isaac's all, hey, if you ever get bored, come on down to the Denny's on Hawthorne. I'll cook you something. I don't really hang out anywhere else socially. Come by. He doesn't say anything else, so after a few minutes, Sharon hangs up. Since Sharon's bored from the phone conversation itself, he decides to take up Macaulay on his dinner offer right now and just hope that he's working. On the way he stops off at Money Penny's table at the insane asylum and sits with her. <laughs> <laughs> she got put in there because she was screaming in silence and that's crazy (laughs) behavior that's what they do to you she tries to fob off her bowl of corn checks on him Sharon's all mama come on you know I don't like that shit money pennies all Sharon you may not love check cereals but that's because you never tried check cereals he sighs drives the Hawthorne and takes a seat at the front counter Macaulay who's not just the cook but the his only waiter and employee walks up to him, smiles, and says, Evening, sir. We're at everything but hash browns till autumn. Sharon, <gasps> it's you. I'd know those arms anywhere. Sharon's all. You said come by. Macaulay's all. Yeah, I called a lot of people that night. I think I actually said <laughs> I'm by. I'm by. I mean it's good to see you. Wait here. Macaulay's in the kitchen for a while, thawing, baking, and frosting a montage, then finally comes out with a covered plate. <laughs> He sets it in front of Sharon and flings the silver lid off with a bisexual flourish. Et voila! It's a bowl of corn, checks. Sharon sighs and tries to scoop up the cereal with his knife. He's all, sorry, it's been a while. Macaulay laughs affectionately and shows Sharon how to use a mortar and pestle. Then he takes out his wallet, fans a bunch of much pictures, and goes, here's my wife, by the way, and my kids. Sharon sighs. This is his second and second worst date ever. Macaulay's <laughs> all... <laughs> didn't mention them on the phone. <laughs> Cock block. <laughs> Macaulay's all, so what you up to, Sharon? After that chair incident, figured you'd go into carpentry. Or esports. Sharon's all, uh, well, I was pissed off at that Remy guy for selling drugs to my mom. So now I do it. Macaulay's all, really? I had no idea. Damn, I only knew your phone number and address somehow. Shyly, Sharon slides all the food onto this table. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Thank God it's almost over. I mean, shyly, Sharon slides all the food onto the table and starts gnawing on the edge of his dinner plate. Macaulay laughs affectionately. Same old Sharon. Sharon's all, hey, that night at the pier. Macaulay smiles, sa- <laughs> Macaulay smiles sadly. I know. There's a tender slow motion shot of them trying to throw live lobsters in a pot later. The kid from the first third of the movie stares at us by moonlight till the moon wins. I look over at Pete Townsend sitting beside me and go, hey, Tom thinks you wrote Chinatown. The end. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. You can't <laughs> end with that. What? That's how moonlight ends. The guy from The Who's there watching it with me. I finally thought of something cool to say to him. I always see Pete Townsend. I go, oh. The so
1: Taranty Town was Robert Town. Yeah, and, the guy who
2: hit, uh Hollywood Shuffle.
1: Yeah, very good. And uh, the thing with uh, Kurt Russell and Mel Gibson is Robert Townsend, right? That Margarita oh, movie. Or what's that called? It's called Tequila, Tequila Sunrise. Sunrise. Tequila Sunrise, right. That's yeah, Robert Margarita Townsend, Man. not Robert Town, right? Uh, I forgot the question. <laughs> All right. Well, I know neither of them is Pete Townsend, just for the record. So. The town is Ben Affleck. Okay, good. I got that one there. (laughs) That helps. Uh, All right, overs and unders. Uh, Ooh! (laughs) I'll go first. Uh, I don't really know, again, what to do with this because it's so good. Uh, So what I've just done is put movies that I like pretty much just as much, uh, but for different reasons, I might maybe prefer them over or under uh, Moonlight. As far as movies about uh, junky parents... Uh, you know, this is a great one, but I think a, a movie that I prefer about junky parents uh, is Tideland, which I think is Terry Gilliam at his uh. level best. It is vintage Gilliam. The, the young girl in it is amazing, Jodell Furland. Uh, Tideland, I think, is great. A Very different kind of movie, of course, from Moonlight. But when it comes to the topic of junkie moms, I'd slightly prefer t- Tideland. In the topic of movies that are rigidly split – uh, not necessarily rigidly, but are neatly split into three acts. Uh, a movie that is almost as good as this uh, is Hunger. Uh, the Steve McQueen movie with Michael Fassbender. is the uh, uh, He's on a hunger strike in, in an Irish prison. Oh,
2: I never saw that.
1: Hunger's got a beautiful three-act structure. What he does, the, the way that they work with that is lovely. Uh, not quite as good as this. Uh, As far as how it uses that three-act structure, Uh, all three of these are, I think, brilliant movies. I love them all for different reasons, and that's just how I would rank them on those particular scales. I'm not necessarily saying one is better or not as good as the other. It's just I had a hard time with this. This is such a brilliant piece of work. You know, what do do you do for an over/under? So, Dingus, what have you done for an over and under?
3: I put I put Hunker just over this. Okay. Um, You know, some somewhat. For the same reasons that you said, I, I chose uh, movies that um, have that feeling of a three-act structure or a play that uh, has been made into a movie, but I don't mind that. Sometimes when a play has been made into a movie, I mind it. Um, this is a play that's been made into a movie, but it's a play that I don't think was ever produced. Uh, oh. But the reason I chose Hunger is because it has one one of the acts that feels like you could just be sitting there and watching that play and i think that the last act of this particular movie is pretty much you could just sit there and watch that as a play and i would be completely content to do that And the middle section of hunger is that similar thing it's it's just a play i could sit there and watch as a one-act play and i'd be completely content to do that um so for under I put Carnage, uh, just because it's a it's a movie that has been turned into or a play that's been turned into a movie uh, that I really like and I don't mind that fact. Um, I really like Carnage and I like mainly because of how brilliantly the actors work together. It's a, a wholly different experience than watching this movie, um, obviously, uh, if you've ever seen Carnage. Uh, But that's kind of the parameters I was going with. I I think Carnage would drop much farther below – much further below, I should say, um, Moonlight. Uh, And I don't know that
1: Hunger is that much higher uh,
3: because I'm pretty
1: crazy about this movie. Kelly Wand, uh, assuming you're not in line with the San Diego Reader, what do you got for an over-under? How did you struggle with making a a movie this great fit into a ranking like that?
2: Well – I don't really do over unders correctly, so <laughs> in my defense, you, well, I don't
1: bracket them closely.
2: I figure if you just come up with one that's over it all and one that's under it all, you've done it well enough, you know.
1: As long as you haven't hit one that's just as good as
2: it you've keeps the them. Shantytown town from blowing away in the wind, unless it's a really strong wind. That's the level. I don't know cuz it's a hard thing to do sometimes and this sure. was a tough one. So sure. my theme could, was just yeah, tough, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and ha- I feel weird even comparing this movie to other movies. Like it seems like it seems dumb to do it in some cases and this one uh I don't know. My theme was interracial romance. Mm-hmm. Wait. So, oh, <laughs> oh, well, okay. My Overs broke back mountain <laughs> and um, <laughs>
1: The and there's
3: Twilight. <laughs> and and Twilight. Boy, <laughs> we were with you. We were so like on your side and then well, you not, that. even
2: yeah,
1: broke that
3: interracial
2: related guy, Kelly
1: Wand. What?
2: <laughs> one of them's brunette. <laughs> and the I other one's it. Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Wait a minute. Which one's Nightcrawler?
1: Anyway. So uh, w- who here besides me has seen – this is Barry Jenkins who wrote, who wrote and directed it, uh, who – and this is astonishing to me – hasn't been able to get another project since he made a movie in 2008 until this, of course, uh, called uh, Medicine for Melancholy. I think it's, I'm pretty sure you've seen it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kelly one, have you seen Barry Jenkins' first movie, Medicine for no. Melancholy? No.
2: I like that title, though. Is it good?
1: It's very good, yeah. It's very yeah, it's good, really and it's good. a similarly intimate love story. Um, just hugely human and appealing, uh, and I feel uh, agenda-free. Although it's it's about young black urban professionals in San Francisco, and it sort of dances around some political issues, but it's not political. Uh, it's a beautiful movie, and it's just a, it's a romantic movie, I think. And and it was came out in 2008, and Barry Jenkins has not been able to get a project going since then. He's tried some things. Uh, but finally, he got this going. Thank God! And yeah. you know, eight years later, has released this uh, amazing bit of work. Um,
2: well, Glazer takes a long time, but maybe he was
1: trying the whole time. No, no, uh, Barry James was definitely trying. You know, he, he hits it big. This is a little tiny indie. Medicine from Melancholy was just a little tiny indie thing shot in San Francisco, uh, and it. it I'm sure it did the film festival circuit, but uh, he got enough recognition for it that he should have immediately been put on another project, and he tried a couple of things. He tried to adapt a James Baldwin play. He had what Wikipedia describes as a Stevie Wonder time travel script, (laughs) Uh, Uh. and and none of these got picked up, and he, I think, wrote – was on some TV writing teams – but it's a shame uh, to me that that, that guy – it took eight years. It, it's amazing to me that it took eight years for this guy to get another project, and of course it's as good as it is. Uh, it a lot of talented
2: needs. people don't work or can't get yeah. work. It's, it's,
1: it's well, better. in a way, I'm so glad that he did this, and it's not some kind of sellout sophomore project yeah, where yeah. he just sort of signs on to get work. And I don't know if he held out or if he was shut out, or, but for whatever reason, uh, I'm just delighted that this is something he got to make. Um, Alright, so what makes this so good? It's uh yeah, what one of you guys take take this away? What makes Moonlight? We've already just said we really like it. Why do we like it? What makes this thing so good?
2: Uh well for me it's uh I'm not really interested in acting because when I see movies like Moonlight, I realize that it's it's for professionals. <laughs> it's for people who are really good at it. Don't try this at Wait home. Wait a minute. Yeah what does that mean? Because if you're going to be good at something, you should be really, really good at it, or just not do it. If you're going to like show, if you're going to show off your thing, like in, unless you're like writing or acting or something just for yourself, if, if you're going to like go out in the public, it should be something you're really, really good at. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, these, this is what acting is. All of the acting in this movie is just amazing, and it's mostly about acting and atmosphere. I thought um, hmm? I really
1: liked it as a as a piece of art.
2: But I don't know how else to critique
1: it. Digus, you and I both, I think, have a, a pretty uh, specific eye for performances and actors. So does that figure into why you think this is really good? I'm trying to get better. But. I don't understand what Kelly Wan is saying. I kind of get what he's saying in that this is a sort of thing where you look at it and you think, these guys are so freaking good that if you're not this good, you're not really oh. out. This is an it example. It reminds me I'm a
2: civilian.
1: Well, this no, is an this example is of acting I, at if, its if best. Oh, okay, okay, I would think like right, Kelly Wan? That's like yeah, this, is what, my this is what every actor should aspire to. And until you get to something at this level, you're you're not as good as you should be.
2: Right. If you can't be that good, and I'm not saying this is be the 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 threshold for acting. I'm just saying it really gives you perspective on like Felicity Jones in Rogue One. Watch this. Movie in Rogue One.
3: <laughs> but wait a minute. That's uh, this isn't re- that's not really fair in any. Way, shape, or form, because of who's actually playing the parts in these in this movie. That, that, that's not fair.
0: Um, I, I mean,
3: Al, Alex R. Hebert isn't has, is not in any other things. He's awesome in this, and he's he's good in this because of the director of the movie. I mean, he's really fucking good in this movie because,
2: but also uh, Yeah,
0: well, he, I, mean, he,
3: I think he, he's talented, but he's not. He's not, he he doesn't, he hasn't honed his craft. He's not a professional. This is the only thing he's ever been in. He's a kid. And so Barry Jenkins has crafted
1: his performance. I mean, I mean, that's, that's also one, that totally you can't characterize this as, as the responsibility of Barry Jenkins, Barry Jenkins yes is you can partner. because he's he's not a professional Jenkins, what Kelly wanted to say when you say Barry Jenkins has crafted his performance that makes it sound like it's something that Barry Jenkins created he certainly shepherded it he gave the kid an opportunity to give him a, perf- a fantastic performance he gave him a wonderful script he knew how to shoot it and edit it together and, and highlight it but this is something the child accomplished I, I feel uh, right. but and, and I I didn't know what to do, and then he said, what do
3: I do? And Barry Jenkins says, just feel it. And then the kid was able to do that, and he has that. Well, there you maybe go. Maybe that's lightning in a bottle, but that's not what Kelly Wan was just saying, that if you're not a professional, don't do it. That's not the same thing. Well, I think you're taking Kelly's words a little
1: bit too much face value. I, mean, I am. If, I'm taking his words literally. That's not going to say literally. I mean, i just – well, I don't want to speak for Kelly, but I got what he was saying, and I don't think he was saying that – if you can't, well, it just occurred what Kelly is saying is just that this is acting at its best, and he admired it as someone who doesn't normally know or critique or really articulate what makes a good uh, acting.
2: Right. Yeah, just, and I don't consider myself an expert.
1: And, 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 and by way of contrast, you just look at a movie where the acting isn't important and where somebody doesn't really bowl you over, and you feel like, well, the acting in that, whatever. So to someone like Kelly Wan, that's, a, that's an instructive contrast is look at Moonlight versus Rogue One, whether you liked Rogue One or not, whether you liked Felicity uh, Jones or not. Um, like that's an example where the acting doesn't really shine, where it feels like a lot of people could have done this. But I, I look at this and feel like this was uniquely the performance of the people. And it, uh, part of what I really admire about this, too, is I felt like – and this I would give Barry Jenkins credit for uh, – the performances – felt like they built on each other. Like the the final third of this was as good as it was, partly because of the groundwork that the younger actors had laid for them in two different stages. Uh, and that's, you know, the fact that Barry Jenkins tied all that together. And I don't know if the older actors watched the younger actors, uh, they if didn't. they made cuts of the film, or if they just they went to the script. They weren't allowed to. Yeah, well, that's amazing to me then that Barry Jenkins, because it, it does feel like that, third act is so moving because of what we have seen the other actors do in the first and the second act
2: yeah I definitely felt they were the same characters throughout and that's hard to do like I didn't feel that way during Imaginarium
1: right well Well, a lot of times where you've got you know we had that three by three of actors going into other actors and one of our listeners Chris Markinson wrote in about this and I I didn't read it because we hadn't seen the movie yet, but I completely understand. This is an amazing example of actors plugging into each other's performances, and, for, sure. yeah, in older versions of each other. So, Dingus, you're saying that Barry Jenkins didn't let them uh, see each other's performances? What, what, what was that you were mentioning?
3: Well, uh, I watched a bunch of. I- I watched a bunch of stuff about this because I was to- totally fascinated by these performances and uh, Travante Rhodes, who plays Black, um, the the third act uh, dude, uh, I was fascinated by his performance because when, when you go from Ashton Sanders to Travante Rhodes, that, I mean, that it's so unexpected that this, this totally buff dude after that like weak little guy I mean it's just such a bold choice and uh and I think Trevante Rhodes was talking about this. I mean there's this extended interview uh that he does with um oh, gosh what's his name uh Andre Hell, uh, Andre Holland who plays Kevin the older Kevin Kevin in the uh in the um in the diner scene in, in Jimmy's Jimmy C's Um he uh they weren't allowed to look at those other things that uh, he specifically said, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to, because the, the different things that you do, the different uh, gestures that you might make, the different ways that you might walk, uh, the different state way state. that you might deal with people, uh, changes over your life. You're, you're, you you uh, change over your life. And that was one of the points that Barry Jenkins was trying to uh, convey, even though you know, he was trying to convey a certain—I uh, don't know—a certain—a certain, a certain uh, character that goes through his life. But the idea is that you change over your life, and, and he didn't want them to look at that.
1: Uh, Trevante Rhodes was just absolutely captivating to me. I, that guy was just fascinating to watch. And one of the things that I really liked about watching his performance was in the first couple of scenes with him, you establish what a powerful guy he is and he's the you know, the boss over other people. Like he's right. he's not the 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 weak, beleaguered, picked on kid that he used to be. But as he interacts with Kevin, the way that Travante Rhodes lets the shyness and the mm-hmm. uncertainty and the insecurity sort of bubble up. Like that starts to emerge from him, and it's just how he channels the a younger actor's performances at that moment. Here's this powerful man who's reinvented himself, and when he reunites with Kevin, all of his childhood traits come back. All that sort of right. shyness and that young love and that, all of that. It's so beautiful seeing Trevante Rhodes do this dual performance there, uh, and it's, that was just so fascinating to me. I th- yeah. I think you see it
3: uh when he's with his mom. Or uh, you see it earlier uh even on the phone with his mom. I think I think that's when you start to see it. you see you start to see this this sense of uh he he could he could crumble at any moment. And he, I mean he's it's just a, such a brilliant bit of casting because he's so he's just so built so and you know the only other thing I know him from is uh is Westworld, and I what? only watched it because he's he's in the first episode of Westworld.
1: Good lord, who is he in
3: Westworld? <laughs> he's just one of the dudes. He's just oh. like he's just some some guy who's like, oh, that's uh, that's that guy over there. I mean, he's he's barely even in there. Um, I don't know him from anything else. But I went ahead and watched that first episode of Westworld, which I actually really really loved. Um, uh, but. He's just a small little part in it. Uh, but you, you see him kind of doing that breaking thing with his mom, too, um, where where you you see, like, th- this guy is so, he's built so hard, but it looks like he could break at any moment. And I love that about him.
1: Well, it's something that gets me in a movie like this that uh, it, I didn't recognize any of these actors. I didn't know any of them from anything else. Of course, the, the children, because they were probably a lot of their. The, the first performance for, for them. Uh, but it is, it's so amazing to see actors who are so good who don't bring with them that sort of expectation. Like when we don't see anyone, it's not like, oh, I know him from such and such. Like I, I, I remove myself. You know, I follow actors in movies the way some people follow sports. And I don't have that kind of frame of reference when I see someone new like this. Uh, and it's particularly amazing when they're this good. Uh, I love that I hadn't seen any of these guys in anything else. Uh, it, it was just such a revelation.
2: Yeah, like what, Beasts
1: of the Southern Wild kind of felt that way. Too. Exactly, right. Yeah, and yeah. I did think of Beasts yeah, of the yeah, Southern yeah. Wild several times, considering uh, how, how precocious, spe- specifically the kid playing Little, uh, how precocious they were, um, mm-hmm. and how it didn't seem like a child actor performance. You know, we've, I think, talked right. about some movies, like uh, Dingus and I had a real problem with Room. Which Brie Larson is great in, and Room has some other issues. But I didn't like the little kid in Room at all because it felt like a child actor performance. And this little this kid who played Little was nothing like that. The kid was just mm-hmm. astonishing. That so and he is not talking; he has to do a lot of it nonverbal. Exactly, right? Kelly Wand. And that that up. what is amazing to me is how how much is said and how hard hitting that uh, what is a faggot scene is there's very little dialogue in it it's, it's one of those things like with Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck like it's underwritten that scene in Manchester by the Sea because it lets the actors inhabit it in the way in a different way other than, than dialogue uh, and that, that, that little kid could carry that scene with Marshallah Ali was just a joy to watch my god that was such a powerful scene you know their mutual shame uh, the way it both came up uh, the way that they could understand each other at that moment. Um, so, go ahead. Uh, so, so that that fella is from House of Cards.
2: Oh yeah, Remy. Yeah. Man, I got uh, that makes
1: me want to see House of Cards because I he wears
2: a suit. He's like super intense and like urbane and and charming and smart. Like he's a very he's a very polished dude in that. Things, did you, do you know him from anything? Have You
1: You haven't seen House of Cards, have you? No, I've not.
2: Oh, I like it. <laughs> it's probably the dumbest thing I like. But uh, I didn't recognize him when I was watching the movie, and only later went, oh, wait, it's that guy. Ah. Because uh, I knew I'd seen him somewhere, but he
1: just seemed, he really inhabited that role. He does a thing that, uh, I, I suspect it's natural. I mean, I don't know if it was an affectation he did for the role, but he does a thing where he'll, 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 Shove his tongue out between his lips. Yeah, uh, that's something you see in House of Cards a little bit. Yeah, okay, because it was really endearing. <laughs> like, yeah,
2: uh, he's really good at channeling like really sp- repressed emotion. That seems to be yeah. something that he's really good at conveying. And something I really liked about this movie that I also liked about Loving is all, all the omissions of information. Like, you just have to get it from the way they're interacting. Like his relationship with Teresa, and you don't see the. The Remy character in the second act—I really like that. Yeah,
1: what you know, what became of him? That's—I yeah. that's, I don't think it's ever answered, I, unless I missed. He doesn't need to be. Right. But it's like
2: Loving's not about the Nick Kroll character; it's only about those two characters,
1: and this is only about Little. And like, I like that focus. Well, it also says a lot about Chiron's character. Is that. At a certain point, he has to continue through life without this powerful father figure to figure he managed yeah. to find you know mm-hmm. what did certainly things like his homosexuality his relationship you know his, his, his mother uh, her failures, and uh, at some point that 's another factor in making him who he is that uh, Juan wasn 't around anymore, and you know that 's not something that we in the audience are given the specifics of, but i can 't imagine anybody not wondering that uh, yeah. it 's a, it's a keenly felt absence it reminded me of. You know when you when you have a powerful character and a powerful actor go missing like that, like an animal. He's
2: your first character too.
1: Yeah, exactly right. He's the he's the he's the guy who introduces you into the movie, yeah. isn't he? You're with him. And, yeah. you, and when he goes missing, you definitely, as an audience member, feel that absence. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to empathize with the character. The character obviously feels the absence as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you don't talk about it. It's like an elephant in the room. And you're still seeing her, Teresa. Um. So, yeah, he has a mother figure then. That was the trade he made.
1: I was a little distracted by how really hot the actress playing Teresa was. Yeah. Oh, geez, Pete. I'm enjoying this. Uh, Barry Jenkins, I'm having a great time in this movie, and you really put someone in here who's a little too hot for for me to uh, be watching at this point. So distracting. God, she was gorgeous. And she stays hot for the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, One cure for that, if you look up the actress, she's apparently a pop star. Uh, The actual actress uh, does really weird things with her hair that are incredibly unflattering. So if you want to be disabused of notions of her hotness, uh, just Google some pictures. Yeah, I hate hot. It's terrible. Uh, Dingus, you have a... Uh, I don't know, it's a phrase or you've characterized certain movies and I love this as junkies are tedious movies uh, because junkies are tedious and whole movies about junkies can be tedious. Uh, How much does this movie skirt that problem uh, or is it a problem? I I think
3: it's really careful about it. And what's weird is um, watching some of the, uh, I don't know, uh, some of the interviews about it because Naomi Harris was really reluctant to do this movie um she she was actually absolutely adamant that she would never play a crack a a woman who did crack she didn't want she didn't want to do that at all uh but because the script came to her and because um because barry jenkins talked to her about it she decided to do it because it was a really good project and really made a lot of sense to her and was really meaningful to her. But she did not want to do that at all. Um, but I thought she was really careful about it. And I think that they were really careful about showing that out. And as far as what how Juan uh, deals with that and how all of the different permutations of Sharon deal with it, I don't think that it falls into that category at all.
1: It shows us, too, um, a, it kind of redeems the character in a way, too, by showing us where she ends up. Uh, it's right. not a junkies or tedious, now let's follow them down the drain situation. It's a junkies or tedious. Sometimes, even though they're still junkies, they recover somewhat, and they try to cobble their lives back together. It's nice to get an insight into that in that third act, I think. Uh, uh, there's a movie that, that uh, it's actually a couple years old, but you can watch it online now, called Glassland. With Tony Collette and a, a young British actor named Jack Raynor, who's really good, uh, and Glassland has amazing performances from both of them, and especially Tony Collette. But unfortunately, it's a hardcore to the bone, junkies are tedious movie, <laughs> where Tony mm-hmm. Collette plays his mother, and it's uh, in her case she's an alcoholic. But every bit as much the kind of thing as what Naomi Harris is doing in this. Uh, I don't recommend it. It's a little. It goes a little off the rails, but Tony Collette is amazing in this. And I was so, you know, I can't imagine Naomi Harris. I mean, I can imagine her reservations, but I'm so glad she did do it. Yeah, uh, me too. And especially because of what happens in that third act as well, when he's sitting with her at the rehab place. Yeah.
3: But I don't. Yeah, but just, I don't he, think.
1: But I don't think this movie is is mainly
3: about that. I think it's more about. Uh, I don't know about parenting or about uh about growing up and and parenting and, and 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 more than those two things about identity uh so i I don't think that it's about uh, dealing with junkie issues or the junkies are tedious you know i mean there, there are some i mean there's so many things that I really love about the segments of this movie um and about you know sexual identity that this movie deals with because i mean look at that that game that those dudes are playing at the in in that segment where they're kicking around that uh that huge that that ball what did you guys call that when you guys were playing that game when you were growing up?
1: Do you remember I never played <laughs> you're you're accusing me of having done something sports like as a child i yeah
3: so, so, so the game that you play when, uh, like, here's a ball, you have to grab it, and everybody has to tackle you, and everybody's going to shy away from grabbing that ball, and then somebody grabs it, everybody tackles them, and beats them into submission, and then the ball goes rolling, and then you grab it. When I was growing up, that was called smear the queer. Did you guys ever play that game? I did not. I, uh, it was right. too sports like for me. Yeah. All right. So and I have no idea why that it was called that. Why would that? you
0: play it? <laughs>
1: it it's, it's How just, do you score points, by the way? What's the goal?
2: You, <laughs> it, there's no would, goal. Who are you it's, playing as? Which,
1: are there referees?
2: <laughs> do I want to bully someone or get my ass kicked?
3: It's, my it's, like, yeah. it's like being able to
2: play rugby with, but
3: without refs.
2: You, you guys never played smear the Queer? No, I took, I aver, avoided things where it looked like I was going to get my ass kicked. Yeah, I read, I was
1: busy reading books. I'm sure literature. Yeah, that was one thing
2: that <laughs> I didn't get my ass right. kicked.
3: Out. So I totally identified with that section. That that whole smear. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody else knows this game, but uh, but it was it was we called it smear the queer. So. Uh, which which is a horrible thing to call it, but you know this is forty years ago. It's kids, yeah. uh, it's kids. Kids are stupid. Um, they like but why. That, was, that was what they were playing, and it was like, you know, eventually they go on to say it's the, you know, it, it, you know, if it get you down, stay down that that thing that happens between Kevin, and um, and Chiron. Uh but that thing with that. That cobbled together ball was the thing that you know my friends and I when I was a little kid, I was taught to play. It was smear the queer and and so taught so that yeah well that's what that's what kids do like this is what we're playing. You're going to play it. You're going to play it or you're not going to play it. And fuck you if you're not going to play it. Um. So that the fact that this is a kid who's dealing with. Uh, being called a faggot all the time, even by his mother, uh, is having to play this game that I remembered being called Smear the Queer is totally weird to me. And it's, it's weird to me that you guys don't even have any recollection of that. Oh, I've heard the term. I just didn't, didn't do those kinds of sports. I know there were rules. <laughs> yeah. there, there aren't any rules. It's uh, whoever picks up a thing gets tackled. do still pick it
1: up. You What's win. Tr- what struck me in that scene was
3: how well, well, look in at that, him, look look at him. They kick it toward him. They kick it toward him. They kick it toward him. I mean, that's
2: why is that's he even kind there? of
3: a what?
2: Why wouldn't you just go somewhere else and just? You he know, does. But, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what struck me in in that that little bit is after he leaves is how Barry Jenkins shot their wrestling very much like a sex scene. Yeah, yeah, I loved that. I mean, it, it yeah. was a little uncomfort- I mean, not uncomfortable, but you know, they're, they're children, and neither neither of them. I I think is aware how sort of sexual the wrestling is. But Barry Jenkins knows we as the audience. He wants us to understand that this is an important moment, especially for Chiron. Uh, And so he shoots it like a sex scene, which I thought was very tasteful. Actually, all the sex scenes in this, well, the one, I guess, uh, I I just loved how non-uncomfortable I think they were in terms of – because you watch Brokeback Mountain and – When that finally breaks out into sex, it's like kind of super explicit and weird and rough. Uh, He shot these sex scenes the same way – well, like the kissing scenes the same way you would with a young heterosexual couple. And I really like it because it made me feel this whole movie – and I think this is my takeaway from it, and this is – a lot of what I admire about it, this movie is really no different from a, a heterosexual love story. Uh, incidentals are, of course, different. But as far as being a story about a child who falls in love with someone and then grows up and re-experiences that childhood when he reunites with that person, um, and the fact, too, that this wasn't uh, homophobia Uh, Porn. You know, when we saw Loving, one of the things I liked about that movie, it wasn't racism porn. It was about racism. Racism existed, but it wasn't a movie that wanted to repeatedly hit the audience over the head with how terrible racism is. Uh, It it didn't have this fetishistic concern with racism. I felt the same way about this. Even though it was about a homosexual guy, it wasn't homophobia porn. You know, it wasn't necessarily about the terrible things that happened to him. Yeah, he got picked on. He got bullied. A lot of straight kids do, too. It's tough being a child. It's but he tougher. was getting bullied constantly because
3: they all thought he was gay.
1: But he's They're also so not it
3: wasn't, it wasn't just that. I mean, that that guy was like, I'm not into the gay stuff. I mean, it was constantly gay. It was gay bashing all the time. That, that guy in his class is is going after him constantly because of the gay thing.
1: You don't see that? Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I see it as a a movie about a a child being bullied and the fact that he was bullied. I mean, bullies pick on somebody for whatever their weakness is. His weakness was that he was a little gay kid. He was also a little kid. Uh, His mother was a drunk. He was picked on for all those reasons. And I didn't see it as a movie that wanted to highlight homophobia. It was not a movie about how how people don't understand uh, homosexuality. It was a movie about how homosexuals fall in love just like anyone else, and right. how they have relationships just like anyone else, and how they experience and grow into the concept of love as children, and how it stays with that experience stays with them into adults. Um, yeah, you're right, Dingus, in that this kid had a very hard time with life for for multiple reasons, and a, a prominent and his one mother also. was calling him a faggot. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that well, like I said, his mother was a was a, a junkie. He was a little tiny kid. Yeah, he didn't have a father around. Um, I'm just saying, Dingus that I don't feel that it was a movie about homophobia. I think that it had other things to tell. When that when that San Diego right. Reader review says that it has an agenda, you know, calls this a, 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 I forgot what it said, but something about agenda. I didn't see an agenda here. I did not see an agenda about hitting the audience with how horrible homophobia is.
3: Yeah, well, not no, I agree stuff. with you. I agree with you that it, is, that it's, that it doesn't have an agenda, um, but I think that
2: the uh, the specific bullying was about that. But how does it sure. manifest? It hasn't manifested itself in any way that they there's no. He's not gay yet. Like he's still young.
3: Well, no, but but his mother makes a point of saying, "Are you going to tell him why uh, all the other kids are kicking his ass, and this this other dude is going after him all the time?" And he's saying specifically, uh, "I'm not into that gay stuff." I mean, it's it, they're constantly hammering that home, and well, and then they have a they have a, that that moment, that wonderful moment that you've already ta- uh, talked about, Tom, where where he's. Sitting at the table, going, uh, "What is a faggot?" And you don't have to know that yet. You don't have to know. I mean, I think that's a very specific thing. It's not just uh, you're you're a little weakling and we're beating you up. I think it's it's very specific about both black both but black culture as how it relates to homosexual culture and how uh, a young homosexual is dealing with those things. I I think it's very specific
1: about that. I don't think it's general. Well, are you disagreeing – let me just turn it around this way. Are you disagreeing with me then that it's a movie about – that it's not a movie about homophobia? Uh, Because that's sort of my point is that I didn't feel it was a movie about homophobia. I felt it was a movie about being young and falling in love.
3: No, no, I, I agree with you. I just don't think that you can dismiss
1: that as an issue in the movie. I'm not sure I did that. I mean I'm just saying it's not a movie. That's what I admired about this is it was a movie where I completely understood this young gay man's experience where the sex scenes and the love scene, it wasn't a sex scene, didn't seem like something I could identify with them. You know when these two men kissed each other I didn't think, wow there's two men kissing each other and they're really convincing. I thought that's kind of beautiful. These two people are in love and they're they're sharing a kiss. I know what that's like. and also being picked, up. I was called a faggot as a kid, and I'm I'm not gay. I was never gay. It's just something that you know bullies, bullies will pick up for any reason. Right. And I think anyone who is bullied would watch this movie and identify with this young character, regardless of the fact whether they were picked on for being gay or not. You know, right. it's a, it's it's a movie about, as you said, identity and how difficult that is for, for blacks for fatherless children, for gay children, uh, and because it's a love story, of course, the homosexuality is going to be prominent because he is in love with another man. But I didn't feel, just like I didn't feel loving was about how the South is awful mm. and they are racist constantly calling people the N-word and whatever, uh, I didn't feel this was that kind of movie about homosexuality. Um, and I'm trying so, to I, think of like, what's an example of that movie that I would call homophobia porn. And by the way, when I just call something like racism porn or homophobia porn – I'm not saying I approve of either of those. I'm saying they're movies that are explicitly, fetishistically based on making that point. Okay, Uh, all right. Where it's it's divorced from any context and it's just a movie about – and the example I gave uh, during our Loving podcast was there was a movie about the Nat Turner Rebellion called Birth of a Nation. And I felt like that was this fetishistic movie about how historically – People in the South were racist, and there wasn't a lot of context. It was just like they're racist, they're racist, they're racist. It's constantly hitting you with that. They're evil, they're evil, they're evil. Um, so that was, a, that was a movie about you know, racism porn, and racism is terrible, and I, I can completely appreciate the appeal of seeing a movie about that. Uh, right, okay. I, I see the difference,
3: I think, because you know, when, when I was in high school, because I did theater, I was called a fag all the time. Uh, yeah, by the exactly guys right. who were on the football team, and uh, you know, and I had a bunch of friends who were girls. Uh, you know, all my friends were girls, and they and because I did theater, they called me a fag. Um, so I I see what you're saying here, but I think that that experience, and I understand what you're saying. It's not, it's not the same thing, but um, that the black experience, perhaps as being a homosexual young black kid, is a different thing than what I was going through. Yeah. And uh, but uh, but you're right about that. Not it's not it's not um, it's not homophobia porn.
1: Well, and, and what what it does too, and why I think this is a capital I important movie. And I feel the same way about Loving. I mean, it's just so it, it's such an amazing, beautiful coincidence that these two movies have come out about the fact that. Being in love is a fundamental part of, of the human experience, of the human condition. And here are two beautiful, intricate, wonderfully acted, and amazingly enough, not cynical and not despondent movies about how some people are denied participation in that part of the human experience. Uh, and, 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 and it's not an alien – like I – You know, I've never been in an interracial relationship. I am not a gay guy. But good Lord, I understand from watching Loving and from watching Moonlight that being in love is something we all experience. And whether you are gay or interracial, it is a tragedy when you are denied the ability to to fully partake in that experience. You know, that's a right that should be guaranteed to everyone. And these movies make that point so well Without actually trying to make – well, without specifically making that point, by just showing us, look, here are people in love. You know what that's like. Yeah, so what if they're both men? So what if she's black and he's white? They're in love. You know that. They're human beings. It's a fundamental part of being human. Exactly. Uh, And both of these movies make that point with amazing writing, direction, and acting. Uh, I just – it's it's – not a coincidence. I mean, yeah, it is a coincidence, but it's just a, it's an amazing thing that these have both come out right around the same time. Uh, I mean, because this is, this is really a love story, right? Like yeah. the, Kelly, let me ask you this: You hate movies of the redemption, therefore, you can't possibly have liked this movie. Well,
2: what? <laughs> Who's redeemed?
1: Well, it had a happy ending. You must have hated that. Yeah, come on.
2: No, I wanted things to work out for little. <laughs> What's that? I mean, are you talking about Kevin's redemption or his mom's redemption?
1: Well, little—I mean, I think little is sort of the it, little the, is the redeemed, movie redeemed. when he, he goes to redeemed. not redeemed, but when he goes to see Kevin, you know, it's not it, they presumably fall in love again. Uh, you know, he gets a happy end. This movie has a happy ending.
0: Yeah, yeah but he.
1: He gets to be touched again. I mean, he hasn't right. been touched
3: since that moment. He hasn't allowed himself to touch another person since that moment. And uh, he's the uh, you know, Kevin's the only man who's ever touched him. And now Kevin is touching him again. This is the only sa- only time that Sharon has allowed himself to be touched again. I mean, that's that's Amazing redemption, and that moment on the beach when uh, when Little is looking back at us, I mean, that's redemption
1: to the max. I
2: think. So see, tell them what, you have
1: to hate this movie now.
2: No, because it's not – I don't see it's redemption, but it does something that I really like, um, and I think or these – these are movies, like, I think this is a really instructive movie for homophobes for the reasons you said, but it's also an instructive movie for, like, teenagers, in my yeah. opinion, because yeah. what it says is, and I love movies that say this because it's so true, and it's something you don't really get a sense of from a lot of movies, especially high school movies, but, like, when you're a kid and when you're in high school, those times feel like they're going to last forever, and you're always going to be defined by the things that happen then. But in the third act of this, it's like, when you're an adult, all that shit kind of goes out the window. Like, I'm just like, dude, it was it was a different time. It was dumb. We were kids. Sorry. Like, we're different people now. And your life's going to go on. Mm. And whatever happened to you in high school, it's going to be nothing when you're an adult. Or not necessarily nothing, but,
1: like, you, Kelly you know, Wan, do you remember the, the David Gordon place. Green uh, – there's a David Gordon Green movie called The Sitter with Jonah Hill. You, you saw that, right? Yeah. <laughs> do you remember the bit – thought- yeah. There, there's, a, there's a young actor named Max Records who was in um, Where the Wild Things <laughs> Are. Uh, yeah, and he was just in a movie I really am dying to see called uh, I'm Not a Serial Killer, which is a horror movie. He's, he's grown up now. I can't wait to see this. But anyway, Max Records, who I think, is a great actor. He's, uh, he's got a scene with Jonah Hill where he's freaking out because he lost his, some kind of medication that he's on. And Jonah Hill's just like, you know what? Chill out. It's not about the medication. I know there's other things going on with you. And he's like, no, there's not. What are you talking about? And Jonah Hill's like, look, I know you're gay. And he's like, I'm not gay. I don't want to be gay. And Jonah Hill has this great conversation with him, where he says, you, you know, you're gay. And l- now, look, let me explain how this is going to go. High school is going to suck. It's going to be terrible when you have to come out to your parents. This is going to be difficult. I can't, you know, I, I can't reassure you about that. However, trust me when I tell you that when you get to college, no one will care. When you right. grow up and, and you get like a, a job in the entertainment industry and you're super organized and you smell good, no one will yeah. care. Like it's a great little moment that's crassly played. It's a David Gordon Green comedy. Uh, but it's what you're getting at, Kelly. Juan, this idea that, that yeah, whatever whatever yeah. trauma you're going through as a child seems to you like it it's the sum total of your existence, yeah. and all
2: your enemies from that era, and everyone who picked on you is totally forgotten, like right, by right. everyone. Like they're not these demonic figures that will control your destiny ever again. But so I you love just that gotta, scene, like waited it, it out. Yeah.
1: yeah, I love that scene in the sitter being about being gay as a kid, and how difficult that, that, that is going to be, and you are going to get past it. and
2: yeah, I think the long game.
1: Yeah, exactly. Think the long game. Presumably, you'll be able to live a, a, a more normal life. Yeah, Right. You just got to survive. I went back and looked at the scene, and that's sort of the end of that scene with Jonah Hill and Max Records. He says to Max Records – and it's a great moment. He says, nothing is wrong with you. You're normal. Right. And I mean what, what kid doesn't want to be told that, much yeah. less – I can only imagine a kid who feels like, oh my god, I'm gay. I'm weird. There's something wrong with me. I need to be fixed. I'm broken uh, to tell that child you're normal. Uh, you know, no one
2: else gets that anymore. They never go, you're normal. It's like you're always exceptional. You're special. Well. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think that's a
1: slightly different uh, take on yeah. It, yeah, being called your normal. But yeah. the word normal doesn't sound exciting enough. Uh, the thing so. is, you saw Destruction, right, with Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah. It's the Demolition. F- demolition, yeah. And isn't there a scene like that with the child actor in Demolition where, where Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal's talking to him about being gay? Yeah yeah I, I vaguely recall that one too um
3: because the kid doesn't know what he is I mean I mean that's one of the things he just doesn't know what he is yet it's confused yeah yeah yeah, speaking of being confused i I just want to bring up that Chris Webb wrote in this week uh it, it, it the reason i'm I really liking this is that chris says I, he feels like he only writes in when he doesn't like things to be like this a lot um and uh he said, he says webb. Yeah, finally, Chris Webb. Thank you. Uh, the friend. thing that, that stands up most for him uh, is that um, I, I think he, see, he, see, he saw it a month ago. It's the, por- it's the performance of T- Travante Rhodes in the final he, act. Yeah. He believes he wins his award for man crush of the year.
0: No kidding. Um, yeah,
3: yeah. Uh. Well, with his shy smile revealing garish gold fronts. Um, and he, he also talks about that that great uh that great scene where uh, young Sharon is eating the water in the bathtub. Um, but I just love, I love that he calls Travante Rhodes uh, his band crush of the year because that guy, I, when he showed up for me and this is why I love that Chris Webb brought this up when he shows up, it's just such a surprise to see this huge dude after seeing the Chiron character in the second act. You see this this huge dude who's built himself into this hard guy. Yeah. Um but at any moment at any moment it looks like he's gonna crumble. And 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 that's one wonderful thing about the performance of Trafonti Rhodes is that every moment in
1: that diner, it looks like he's gonna fall apart. I love that so much. You probably hated that that scene was in a diner, didn't you, Dingus? But you know I don't. <laughs> you know I love that scene. I love the way the, I love the way the two of
3: them play that. It's like a it is like a one act play, uh, and it's just so well played. It's so well structured, and it's so well blocked. And I think that they had a hard time doing it too because. Uh, from what I understand, is they they had all uh, they had all these plans to do it, and then um, Barry Jenkins, because of their time constraints, had to just say, "All right, guys, you just have to do this. Um, we can't do it in the way that we want to try to structure the scene as far as shooting it. Is that you guys are just going to have to play it, and they played it like you would play it, like I don't know, running sort of a, a, a dramatic improv." Um, uh, the way they block that scene, the way they they,
1: they play it out, is beautiful. And you also that. probably hate that there's they take so much time showing cooking. I mean we don't need that, right? Yeah, we certainly don't need that. I can't stand
3: cooking in movies.
2: sensuous. It's a very sensual experience. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, go on Kelly wand And eating. Well, is there's it? something I was hoping to give some rise to debate here. I mean, there's just something so caring about cooking for someone, and there is something very special oh, okay. about how lovingly it shows that dish that he's making. I mean, I wanted to eat that; that was great. Uh, and, and you know, the the fact that he's lavishing this attention on on little on Black Sharon, uh, whatever he is at that point, Black uh, that you know that that's Kevin's way of t- just doing something special for him uh, and fussing over him in a way, and basically it's kind of a sensual way of saying I still love you, even though it's yeah. not specifically what he has in mind, I suspect. He just likes cooking for someone. But it's such a caring, nurturing thing to feed someone. And this movie makes that scene, again, it's not shot like a sex scene specifically, but it makes it so sensual. Uh, and there's so much just like texture in that scene. It's, it's a great instance of, of cooking in movie making. Uh, and I don't normally respond to that sort of thing. Dingus is the the uh, food uh, foodie here. Um, but yeah I'm, I figure.
2: a stupid a movie r-
1: would have set that up like as a kid
2: he's, he's a <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> like if this was a Gary Marshall movie it
1: would have been
2: man and I love cooking
1: that's well and speaking uh, to, and, and how it does explain why he knows how to do this I mean that's another thing where you don't doesn't explain a lot of specifics you have to infer some of it but what he tells you do you remember Kelly Wand about how he knows to cook mm, you mean as an adult yeah no I saw this I movie all the
2: time. ago. because he was in prison and he yeah. had to. He oh yeah, yeah. Line. He was I'm on the cooking it. line, yeah,
3: and he took Better to it.
2: Good. Uh, yeah. And uh, that just, you, Tom, like, I'm
3: so glad you brought that up the the way you brought it up because the, for the moment that he recognizes that that's Sharon, that's uh, that that's Black when he looks up at him and he goes, "Oh my God, it's you!" Uh, and then he's like, "Chef special, chef special," and then there's that wonderful moment at the table where um, where. Sharon slash black, like picks up a like a like a black bean that's just dropped down on yeah. the on the table. <laughs> yeah. Like
1: yeah. you don't
3: want to you don't want to miss any part of this, do you? Yeah,
1: because he eats I mean, it. He doesn't as an actor put it back on the plate or put it out of the way. He eats it. He really wants that black bean. I loved that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And every time, uh, every time uh I think his name is um uh, Andre Holland looks at him. It's just with this, this sense of love. It's, it, but it's not just lust. It's, it's, oh, yeah. just, no, it's I love you. It. I'm, I'm giving you this. And I love that you I'm so put glad this, you're here. I love. Yeah, exactly. I love that you put this, this way, Tom. That, and I didn't even think about this, 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 uh, this way of nurturing that, I mean, he's, it's, it's kind of, a, it's, it's almost maternal. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it's this it's beautiful thing when you feed somebody.
1: That's great, Tom. And you can kind of feel, too, uh, Chiron's uncertainty about is he just being nice or should I open up and tell him I'm still in love with him? Uh, You know, Kelly made the joke about when he pulls out the picture of the kid and talks about his, you know, I don't think they were ever married, but talks about having the kid. And, you know, Chiron is on tenterhooks worried that is this just going to be a friendly thing? You know, should I open up? Can I open up? Is my feeling going to be reciprocated or am I just going to have to keep it tamped down? Like you can feel that anxiety. Do Uh, I tell him what I do? Well, yeah, do I tell him what I do? And and, and the same thing, do I tell him that I'm I'm gay? You know, do I tell him that I haven't been with women, that I still think of him? Uh, you, You know, there's that uncertainty and as an audience member, there is such a relief when... That it turns out that they, you know, that they do get together. Like it's one of those things. Like I'm thinking, is this going to be a tragedy about this man who falls in love with someone as a child and can never love again, and now he just has to be friends with this guy, or is Barry Jenkins going to leave us with a smile on our face, like we would get in a in a romantic comedy? Right, um, right. And he, you know, I, it just felt like such a gift that we could have this happy ending, and we could see him cradling his head. That was just such a lovely image that we're left with the two of them. Uh, Right. Uh, go ahead, Kelly.
2: I just want to say my redemption mm-hmm. law, it only applies to comedies I think
1: because it's – Okay. I'll, I'll make a note of that in ter- next, <laughs> next time I give you a hard comic time. Comic characters are usually <laughs> awesome, and then they get redeemed. But so this as, is more- uh, as, so that, that that intimacy and that that scene where they reunite, did you guys notice – and I could be wrong about this – the camera trick that Barry Jenkins did then? No, no. I think – and I might be wrong about this. Uh, I think it's the only time in the movie – I could be wrong about this – where the actors look into the camera, and it's not like a take to the camera. We've talked about that before where an actor turns to look at the camera, and it breaks the fourth wall. Uh, there's a different technique where you put the camera in the actor's eyeline. And the actor speaks directly to the camera. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. breaking the fourth wall; as putting us in the perspective of, of the yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I think that when uh, Black and Kevin start talking, that Barry Jenkins shoots it where the actors have their eye line directly into the camera, and it gives it this this intimacy. This it's almost uncomfortable. I mean, suddenly, uh, you know, we are there in their shoes, so to speak. Uh, but it's a it's a mm-hmm. great. Like when, whenever you see an actor looking directly into a camera, if the movie hasn't been shot that way, uh, a good director there's a reason it's doing that, and I think if I'm not mistaken, that that's unique to the scenes with the adult uh, Kevin and, and Little. Uh, no,
3: you're absolutely right. And, and when I was listening to a because I I'm crazy about this movie, um, uh, when I was listening to. Uh, Interviews with them, like from uh, from TIFF or, what, or whatever other uh, movie festivals that they went to, uh, he uh, he did make a point of saying that 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 was on purpose.
1: Ah, good, right, right,
3: yeah, and and or at least the actors were talking about how weird that was for them to have to do that. Yeah, because
1: um, you're not looking at he, the other actor at that point; <laughs> you're right. looking at exactly. a big huge lens. Yeah. You can probably see yeah. yourself reflected in it. Yeah, you're doing
2: a Star Wars right. movie. <laughs> right. a green screen instead of yeah. the other
1: actor. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a weird thing too. The the scene, which again, just so beautiful when uh, Juan is teaching Little to swim, to float. Uh, How did he shoot that without, is this just me? How did he shoot that without getting water droplets on a camera lens? That was creeping me out. That was freaking me out the whole time. Because the camera's bobbing it's down there at water level, which is a great perspective to show yep. it from. Uh, it's not shooting down in the water. The camera's down there in the water, and there are no water droplets on the lens. That's that's kind of cheating. Maybe he's outside a glass tank, and they're inside
2: it.
3: Well, what was creeping me out, what was freaking me out was that it I don't know stuff. yet if I can trust him, but I think yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. he's like, with this kid out in the water, I, mean, I just don't know where this relationship is going to go yet, because I don't know this movie at all. I mean, I know that like a Like, we have a listener, Chris Markinson, who always writes in and he really likes this movie a lot. Um, and he suggested that we watch it. Um, and he also had written in on a three by three about like the same uh, same character played by different actors. Uh, so I, I knew we could sort of trust that we were in pretty good hands. That you know Chris Markinson liked this thing, uh, but at the same time I didn't know where in the world this was going. So at that point I don't know what one Juan, what one's intentions are fully or where or how I can trust Barry Jenkins to take us with the relationship between one and little at this point. I mean, he's he's got this kid in the water. Um, I, I don't know what to do with this yet. So I was I was so nervous about that. And that thing that you're talking about, Tom, with the camera, it was so disorienting to me. It, and it just freaked me out because of the relationship. I didn't know where the relationship. I thought I knew where the relationship was going, but I didn't quite know yet. And then the the camera too was it was just so weird because there are no little droplets on the lens. There's nothing going on there. I don't know how he did that.
1: i so the whole I'm, thing was disorienting to me. I'm guessing CG. <laughs> I actually don't know if that's the case or not, but uh, it, what no, are they, I, I can't do want to imagine that, but uh. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I don't know. It's freaky. Uh, one of the things, though, that I do when you mention that thing is, I kind of want to see this without the anxiety of being worried for them, yeah. uh, because that, again, you know, we're used to a movie like this, *Brokeback Mountain*. Jake Gyllenhaal gets killed because he's gay. You know, something terrible is going to happen, uh, and I'm worried that this movie is going to do that. And there's a little mm. bit of anxiety as it unfolds, uh, yeah. and it's just like you're talking about Dingus with Juan's relationship. Why is Juan spending so much time with this kid? Uh, and I, so I also was just so worried for, uh, for for Chiron and Kevin in that scene when they're leaving the diner. I'm like, oh my god, is this gonna be one of those movies where they get sure. there a hate crime perpetrated against them? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> mm. uh, so I was so relieved that didn't happen, and I kind of want to be able to watch it again without that anxiety uh just right. enjoying the performances and knowing everything's going to be okay i don't need to worry about them <laughs> I, I do
3: kind of miss Juan though in the oh, last two lord yeah. Of the movie. yeah and, and the, the, you know
0: you're supposed in, to though. and yeah.
3: chris chris morgeson reminds me of this in in reminding me of this this moment where you know uh uh where he says, I hate her. It's like, I hated her too. But one says, you know, I, I miss her like hell now. Um, and I remember that moment between the two of them. And yeah. I really missed losing that guy. I missed, I missed him good, Just going away. I mean, I'm glad that we still have Teresa through the movie. And I think that's, I think that's on purpose because basically the women and the mothers, you know, you know, stick around for good or for ill. um, Oh right. I like yeah,
0: that
3: yeah. Chris reminds me of this you know, I miss her like
2: hell now mm. Kelly Wan were you glad that Teresa stayed with us through the movie? Does um, Fastbender pee in Hunger?
0: One two three, Not only you and me Got 180 degrees And I'm caught in between Counting One two
2: three, three I assume that's one, what you
1: want to do
0: three,
1: so. three, <laughs> three, uh, three, Close three, enough three, I didn't know if you had something else in the chamber so to
2: speak I don't have a lot to say about Moonlight except it's really good. It's one of those. It's it's more. I have more to say about when when things don't work or when things work. It's just see the movie.
1: It's good. It, it, you know, it is kind of harder to articulate when you just are so in love with something, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah. When you hate something, you're just so detached from it, and you're like, I hate it for A, B, and C, and I'm gonna remember yeah. that when I leave. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. But uh, you
1: get swept up in something like this or La La Land or Loving, and it's just like, yeah, it was really good.
2: Yeah. Although La La Land's weird too, but like Moonlight's not a weird movie. Yeah. It's just like an effective story.
1: Speaking of things that are weird, I think it's what's this week's three by three? that this boy, movie. that is a
2: terrible Oh <laughs> boy. <laughs> oh boy. We're
3: you doing a Ryan Gosling thing just now. Uh that was Emma Stone, actually. Oh my <laughs> <That> mistake. <laughs> what's wrong with uh you? these are your three favorite birds in movies. What? What?
2: Three huh? favorite birds? Huh? Birds. What? You what? say barracuda. Everyone's
1: all, huh? What? You say what? bird. You get something something on the 4th of July. <laughs> you got a panic on your hands on the 4th of July. Kelly Wan, if you're going to quote Jaws, quote it. Huh? What? <laughs> and you have to uh, be wearing a, a, a blazer with little anchors on it when you, when you reenact that scene. That's Tom what Chick,
2: you are uptight.
1: Very good, Kelly Wan. Now get back here and rub my shoulders. Yeah, uh-huh. do you want to get drunk and fool around? The thing is, Kelly, uh, woman, and I—we're doing Jaws quotes. I don't know if you know that. We're gonna see that you're gonna spill that Murawski kid all over these docks. <laughs> there aren't any birds in Jaws, unfortunately. So I'm gonna start us off because I'm uh, introducing. It's like the- a water bird. Oh, oh shark you're- is like a water bird, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's the
2: bird of the water because he's got a wing. That's what a fin is.
3: Yeah, you're gonna need a bigger nest.
2: Uh, he screwed it up. He said, you're going to – it's weird. No. Oh, he did it right. He didn't screw it up. How about see? that? He did it right. In The Swarm, Henry Fonda's is all – you're going to need a bigger hive. Huh. That's not true. Yeah, that's fuck off, think. Kelly. That's terrible. Get
1: My out. third favorite bird in a movie – and here's the thing about this bird. And this is a terrible scene. I hate this scene. Uh, I don't know if the movie's available anywhere. I looked for it this week. couldn't find it, but uh, – This is a movie I haven't seen. I only remember this one scene about the movie, and I hate this scene for what it does to the bird because I like this bird. I like all of these birds. The bird is a penguin. This penguin – this is a movie called Five Corners, and it's apparently where John Turturro is out of prison, and he was in love with Jodie Foster, and he goes back to – I guess the neighborhood is called Five Corners, uh, and he kind of stalks her. Uh, Oh, good lord, that's Jodie Foster's stereotyping, right? Uh, so he stalks her, and one of the things he does is he sneaks into I don't know, the Bronx Zoo or whatever, and he steals penguins to bring them to her, to give her penguins, to show her that he loves her. That's uh, a good when, idea. It's a good idea, but it doesn't work, Kelly Wan, because she's like, wait, you can't take penguins out of the zoo. You know, so then he shoots Reagan? Sorry. Well, you're close. So John Turturro, when she is – She doesn't think these penguins are a good idea. It's a gift. John Turturro freaks out, and he kills the penguins with a baseball bat. Oh! And I remember a shot from behind the penguins. There's like a silhouette of the penguin in the foreground. There's Jodie Foster in the background. And I don't think it actually shows penguins getting hit, of course. But I remember a shot where he then raises up the bat. And and I don't know if this is just in my memory. um, But I just – I I was shocked by that. And, and, And it's the only thing I remember about that movie. Uh, is John Turturro clubbing penguins to death because Jodie Foster didn't think it was a good idea that, that they are removed from the zoo? So it's I like love those little. Thing again, it, well, I love those little guys. Uh, I love all penguins, but especially I feel bad for these poor guys that were clubbed to death by John Turturro. So I'm choosing them as my third favorite birds, and I'm choosing them in memoriam. Wait a minute, you're choosing what? You're choosing birds getting clubbed to death? like them. I feel bad for them and I wanted to honor them, Dingus, so they (sighs) occupied the third spot. The murder of penguins. And also, Dingus, uh, there's, like, unless I pick Fight Club, there's not a lot of options for penguins because that penguin movie is a documentary and that's not a movie. So, if I wanted to get penguins in there, that's just what came to mind. (sighs) Kelly, one, five five corners sounds like a movie you would know. You don't know that movie?
2: I don't see movies with that many corners.
1: Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, Kelly, on what movies with birds do you see, and what's your third favorite bird in a movie?
2: Well, I tried to keep Hitchcock off the table.
1: I think that was taken off the table, so that was done for you. It was. It? Thing is, didn't you take the birds off the table? Yeah.
2: Oh. Uh, hey, when I was in Malibu, a bunch of birds like attacked my table and my food. Did that ever happen to you? Did they attacked you club the table. Did you club them? No, I just stared at them. <laughs> I think. you How do you club? I mean, penguins, you could club. But birds with wings <laughs> they tend to leave <laughs> yeah they've yes. evolved, they've evolved past baseball bat hunting my number three bird thing is okay so i kept hitchcock off the table kinda but um uh-oh, uh-oh. in the motion picture high anxiety <clears throat> mel brooks parody of hitchcock movies there's a scene where um, Mel Gibson, I mean Brooks. <laughs> wow. They're both Jewish. Anyway, Mel Gibson's sitting on a bench, and uh, he sees some birds on a statue, and then they chase him and shit all over him. And then he has to run, getting shit on by the birds. So Once again,
1: a perfect example of why I'm not into Mel Brooks. I don't think he's funny. What?
2: Bird shit's not funny? Hmm.
1: All right. What's the ma-
3: what's the max dude you brought up, Tom?
2: Max, uh, max?
3: Records, Max Records,
1: Max oh. Records. Did we like him when we actually saw that movie?
3: You guys or maybe didn't I like... just
1: didn't. You guys didn't like as much as I did. I was the I think I was the only def- uh, apologist for where the wild things are. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that one that really? Kelly, did... Kelly? You didn't see it right when we did. I walked this... out of it. Right, you left it. Yeah, because I liked I the ending. It goes to a that... cool place. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, right. So.
2: Uh, I was basically with someone who was hating it, and they made me leave.
1: Oh.
2: It was a dude. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. Fun story.
1: If it's a dude, then why would you? how could a dude get leverage on you to make it? You'd be like, no, go wait in the car. I'm watching this movie. Yeah, if it's, it's a too, chick, but, I would understand Kelly Wand.
2: But a chick would make you want to
1: see the end of Where the Wild Things Are. Although chicks are usually the
2: ones who make you leave movies more. Guys are just like, let's just stay seated.
1: If I was watching Where the Wild Things Are and Dingus wasn't into it, first of all, he wouldn't make me leave. But there would be no way I'd be like, yeah, you're not into this. Let's go. I'd be like, Dingus, fine, whatever. Go wait in the theater. I'm watching. It. Go yeah, wait in until this movie's right. over. Yeah. I don't
2: know. What was the who question? gets you to leave a
1: movie? What? He's How's that possible? That's, a, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, I think. Yeah, maybe it was it like your boss or was it someone who had naked photos of you and they were threatening to publish them?
2: Uh, which boss are you talking about that had this? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, of course. All right, what? so so Kelly Wands chose not the birds, but a a, a riff. High
2: anxiety!
1: A Mel Brooks joke about the birds. That's Does that the even work, song. that movie? Nope. Does High Anxiety work? No. I, I can say nope. Even
2: though I
1: haven't seen it in, since I was a kid, I'm just going to guess, nope. I like that part of it. I remember but, trying like, to watch it as a kid, but not getting
3: it at all. And then being introduced to vertigo later on as an, or not an adult, but get going into college and being like, Oh yeah, I get this. Uh, and then get even having more disdain for the uh, whole idea of my anxiety because, uh, and I think that Roger Ebert sort of, um, had this point is that, uh, This type of thing only works if the person who is making the movie doesn't have any sense of humor whatsoever, and Alfred Hitchcock had a sense of humor about his stuff. So Mel Brooks making fun of Alfred Hitchcock doesn't really work because Alfred Hitchcock already had a sense of humor about himself.
1: All right. Well, Dingus, let's talk about your third favorite bird in a movie. Kelly Wan and I are both guessing it's a bird from Midnight Run. Are we right or wrong? You're <laughs> totally wrong. Shoot, Kelly, Wan, we, we were close. Better luck next next time to us.
2: Charles is a real cuckoo in the <laughs> J.K. Wow, it's fun for you. It's a little, fun. A little
3: uh, fun. Do you guys remember the birds in Jurassic Park? The, the
2: paradactyls?
3: There's no paradactyls, That's not a thing.
2: Hmm. No birds. Far- huh. Birds in Tom, Jurassic? Do you Park? remember? Why would there be birds in
1: Jurassic Park?
2: Park. They already have those.
1: That seems like a waste of money on their end. <laughs> uh, do they, like, land in the dinosaur's teeth and pick them clean or something? Mm. Oh, that would be awesome, though. Then on now, that date. Um, <laughs> it's this really
3: beautiful moment. I, I, It's one of my favorite things about Jurassic Park. And it's it's one of the final shots of the movie. And it's when they're flying away from the island at the end. and uh, wow, Samuel the fucking out Would you say the fucking stork?
2: Uh, you like that part? That's your favorite part.
3: <laughs> first of all, they're pel. First of all, they're pelicans, I believe.
2: No, it's a <laughs> stork because now Sam Neill wants kids. And <laughs> really- <laughs> no, they're pelicans. <laughs> now they're going to show me departed while you're at it. Jesus Christ! <laughs>
0: um,
2: I
3: think it's a, I think it's a beautiful and elegant moment the end of Jurassic Park, and Pelican. part of it is because of John Williams' score. Um, but I love, I love that moment where they're flying in the helicopter and he looks over and he sees those pelicans flying.
1: Oh, I uh, know what you're talking about now. It never occurred to me that those were storks. I love Kelly Wan's take, but I totally know the scene you're talking about, Dingus. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd
2: ever seen. <laughs> Why do you think it's the dumbest thing you've ever seen? Because it's, it's redemption. It's, uh, oh, look. Now oh, redemption. Old- it's yeah. a redemption because it's not a comedy, so it doesn't matter if it's redemption. <laughs> okay, in an action movie—it's also bad. Oh, okay, okay. Comments. So this is retconning. So retconning. you one, you're like George Lucas now. Yeah, I'm like yes. Well, right? I'm the Goldblum. It's always changing. But so yeah, I those... don't think it's uh, ridiculous. Um, it's terrible. It's, <laughs> it's yes, do the, you the don't last dot of dress.
3: To just use a, a homonym. Why
2: do you think it's terrible? Because I just saw a really cool uh, shot right before that one where the dinosaurs are screaming and, and breaking the dinosaur skeleton. You're like, oh, don't fuck with nature. <laughs> and then you suddenly see a fucking stork and it's like, hey, oh, uh, Sammy's like, yeah, kids are cool because I rescue dinosaurs. <laughs> but also, <laughs> oh, look, see, nature, we can control some of it, you know, like these storks. Just don't get crazy with the frog DNA. In fact, we should use use stork DNA. That's what he's thinking. <laughs> Fuck that shit. Boo. Your choice is denied. Into jail with you. Fucking storks, pelicans.
1: Now, Dingus, what's your take on the shot? Because why do I remember that? I remember he's looking out a helicopter window, and there's a shot of birds. Why would I remember that? Why would
2: it be pelicans instead of my crazy harebrained interpretation? <laughs> it doesn't matter which kind of bird it is, Kelly. It could be ospreys, for all I know. Ooh. Storks.
3: Um, it's Jeez. not. Uh, why I, why I think it's wonderful is because of uh, what was going on in science at the time the the idea of uh, dinosaurs as being related to the birds instead of to reptiles um, was a big deal at the time but it was also just if we just it's just uh, this beautiful shot of of, of life going on uh, next to technology. They're, we're flying in a helicopter. This this whole thing about uh, controlling life, controlling technology, about creating control, uh, about uh, being able to exert control over, uh, over DNA, over life, and being able to create these things. And then the fact that, you know, it's not only that Dr. Grant ha- is right, Probably about the idea that dinosaurs uh, became birds, it's not just that which he makes a point of in the movie and which was this this uh, theory at the time which is uh, since born true it's not just that it's not just him looking over and, and seeing these birds it's just the beauty of nature and understanding that we will never be able to harness it. Um, I, I just love that. I, I love that moment. Part of it is the music. Part of it is the fact that they are flying in a helicopter and, and that they have gone through this horrific thing, and he looks over, and he sees these birds flying, and it's just – well, that's nature. I mean, I'm
1: I, flying. I, you're I, flying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's- See, Kelly Wan, it's, not, it's about science. It's not about Sam Neill's paternal longing.
2: Nature evolved yeah. wings, but we had to make a helicopter.
1: It has nothing to do with <laughs> storks because
3: that doesn't happen in any of the movies. So,
1: what? Eh. what? Dingus, storks? is that scene in the book? Yeah. No. Okay. Hmm. All right, we have varying interpretations here. All right, <laughs> I just didn't know if it was canon or not. I All right. I well, love that Kelly Wand thinks
3: that Sam Neill went on to have babies somehow.
2: Yeah, he had the um, the little black the girl. One.
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, that he has nothing her, to Mike do Goldblum. with. Jeff Goldblum has nothing to do with that.
1: Oh, Jeff! Oh, right.
3: I was confused. Right,
2: he's the. So okay. his character's black in the.
1: Second doesn't one. Sam Neill come back at some? When does Sam Neil come back?
2: The third one with Tia Leone where they're screaming through the forest. Tia, hello, Connor! Yoo hoo! Yeah, but Sam Neill doesn't have any kids. So nice try.
1: Well, he just didn't bring them to Jurassic Island with him. Right, right. He just throws them out of helicopters. Well, uh, let me then break the tie between the two of you by telling you about my second favorite bird in a movie. (laughs) There's an Australian writer who I feel his name should be better known. His name is Everett DeRoche. And he did uh, – he had this great run in the 70s and early 80s doing uh, horror movies. Uh, he's then Since then, he did a bunch of TV. He's recently did a few movies that didn't turn out very well. Uh, one of them was uh, uh, called Visitors, and it's about Rada Mitchell. Uh, she's sailing a boat around the world, and she freaks out. Another one is called Nine Miles Down, <laughs> and it's about Adrian Paul accidentally drilling into hell.
3: Ah, uh, I like that. I love – I love the summary. She sails the
1: boat around the world and freaks out. She does. It's lonely on a sailboat, thing. I don't know if you know that. When you're alone on a sailboat, you just see that movie All is Lost sometime. It's the mm-hmm. opposite of All is Lost.
2: That's Robert Redford it accidentally sails into hell. <laughs> of sorts. <laughs> just like but Captain to,
1: Boy. But the, the greatness of Everett de Roche, these movies in the, the 70s and 80s, including uh, an Australian movie called Razorback, which is Jaws with a pig. <laughs> Uh, A movie called Road Games, uh, which is The Hitcher before The Hitcher. Uh, There's a horror movie called Patrick. Um, But Everett DeRoche's, I think his greatest movie is called The Long Weekend. It's a 78 horror movie about how – you know when it was Jurassic Park before it was Jurassic Park? It was about how nature will screw you over and you – are just F. Na- nature is brutal, and don't go out in it because it's, it's terrible out there, especially true, by the way, in Australia, wherever it deroches from, because there's all kinds of stuff out in Australia that will kill you when you go out in nature. Yeah. So The Long Weekend – Kelly one you don't know The Long Weekend, do you? Is that the one where
2: junkies are tedious, or is that Lost <laughs> Horizon?
1: There are no junkies in Long Weekend, fortunately.
3: The <laughs> um, Long Weekend
1: the, is just – Are
3: you talking about the Ray Land movie? What about
2: Junk yes, Oh,
1: Lost Weekend. Junkies. He was thinking of Lost Weekend. Weekend. Yeah. That is
2: a junkies or tedious movie. Very
1: good, Kelly Wand. Yeah. Thank you. I'm a genius. But no, Long Weekend is about a married couple having issues, so they decide they're going to go camping. They're going to drive out. They're going to camp. But when you just go out in nature, there's really gross, scary things in nature, and terrible things happen to them. Uh, and eventually, only one of them survives, and he is – desperately trying to nice get out spoiler. of it. With, I guess – well, you know what it's from <laughs> One of them survives, and he or she is trying to get out of the Outback or wherever it is they're staying. And it's so terrible, by the way. So he, his wife is dead. He accidentally kills her, by the way, which is hilarious. Uh, and he's got a dog with him. Uh, and their little dog, he's like, okay, dog, get in the, the truck. They've got a Land Rover. We're, we're getting out here. Name, uh, the dog's name was – oh, shoot – it had a cool name, something like, like Clover or, or Crispin. I think the dog's name was Crispin, I believe. Crispin? Um, Crispin, Crispin Clover? A.C. No, Crispin, author of v, the novelization? I forget the dog's name. It had a cool name. If we ever do three-by-three three of favorite dog's names, this little dog's name will figure into it. But here's the thing. So he's so freaking out, he gets in their little Land Rover with the dogs with him, and he's driving, trying to get out, and trying to get out, and runs out of gas, so he fills the tank with the little... Uh, canister from the back of it, and then that runs out of gas, and he's driving, he's driving, and he gets lost, and he's increasingly panicking, and he gets the Land Rover stuck in mud, and it's spinning mm. the wheel, and it can't get out, so he gets out of the Land Rover, and he shuts the Rover. door, and he, he runs away, and he's just running and running, and and there's a shot of the poor dog left in the Land Rover. Like, he just mm. closes it, and the dog is like at the windshield, is like, hey, wait a minute, are you going to let me out? But the guy is panicked, and he has left. Out in the wilderness, he left his dog, what a jerk, in the Land Rover. So, he's running and running, and he finally hears an engine. The sound of civilization. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to escape. So, he, he runs out, and he finds a road. And sure enough, there's a truck coming towards him. So, he gets in the road, and he's waving at the truck to stop and save him. And at this point... Because this is what nature has been doing with them throughout this movie. Nature has just been fucking with them and it's going to kill them. A bird flies into the cab of the truck window and gets in the driver's face and distracts him. So the driver having to like wave the bird out of his face and just smack. He smacks right into the guy and kills him. And that's the okay. final shot of Lost Weekend. So my third, second favorite bird is that bird that got the husband killed at the end of Long Weekend. That nature fortuitously sent into the truck driver's face at that very moment, uh, and hence the ending of Long Weekend. Mm, I, I love that, actually. If,
3: if he left his dog to die.
1: He deserves it. I know. I didn't remember that part yeah. of the movie thing. Just I was watching it, I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, he totally left his dog to die. He could have just let the dog out. Oh, it was such a jerk move. Well, no, yeah. now the dog has a chance, though, because if, if anyone finds the Land Rover… Yeah, but the implication with the way the movie is shot, that he has to wander long and far and it's getting dark. Like he's – it's a long way that it takes him to get to the road. And well, he also drove a long way from the campsite where they were. I think the dog is dead. I'm sorry, Callie Wand. I think it starves to death in there. But why wouldn't you want a dog with you for that? place? Like, he could help you. He's, Right. He's so freaked out at that point. That's the thing. Is he no, he's not a
2: character. No,
1: no, no, neither. That's the great thing about – so this is the 70s where you could have a movie about two two characters you hate – uh, and they're they're just jerks and they're throwing trash everywhere and uh, you know they're not getting along and it's uh, you don't like either of them and, and so you're kind of rooting so for It's nature. a
2: happy ending.
1: I guess you could think of it that way, yeah. Except for the dog. Well,
2: have
1: for the we dog. had
3: a, a category of three by threes where it's
1: you know abandonings because that's. It really is chilling, like to see that. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, a, there's a great Cormac McCarthy novel called The Orchard Keeper, which uh, I love a lot yeah. of things about it. But the one scene I remember from The Orchard Keeper is the, the character has a basset hound, and he, at one point in the story, gets arrested and carted yeah. off, and he's going to get thrown in prison. And the, they, of course, don't bring the basset hound with him. And Cormac McCarthy makes the point, it's heartbreaking, of explaining how they put the character in the car and they're driving him off, and the basset hound is just trotting after the car. Jesus with that image that poor facet happened and and what happened oh is there more am I forgetting something someone shoots the dog oh because they don't they know he's not going to be able to take care of him so they put out his misery or they just don't care Kelly Wand oh my god you're making this podcast so depressing it's Cormac
2: (sighs) some dogs get fucked up in Blood Meridian too but you
1: probably get up to that part I've read blood, blood Meridian. I'm okay with, like, you know, cannibals eating unborn babies in the road. I just don't oh, yeah. want getting shot no, and abandoned. I don't care about humans. Yeah, I know. Well, because the dog doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Thing is, see, uh, this, oh, so Kelly Wan, can you make this a more cheerful podcast by telling us about some fun bird in a movie that you enjoy?
2: Yeah, okay. So in uh, 1 million BC, with Raquel Welch. Oh, sure. I love this pick. Go on. Is that
1: a bird? Well, it's a paradactyl, but those are birds. Like so just, Well, explain the scene. It's a great scene, by the way. Uh, and then let's let's have your, your court hearing.
3: Well, what I just what movie are it, you talking about? What is this movie? 1
1: Million BC.
2: 1 Million BC, the caveman movie. So it's like near the end of the movie, and that's an
1: important. Really want why people would remember 1 Million BC? First of I, all, you, you've brought up a movie called Caveman, so I don't even know what 1 Million BC. Yeah, this is the parody of it. No, it's so. not Oh. This is an earnest movie, and there are two reasons – not that kind of earnest movie. There are two reasons this movie is notable, Kelly Wand. What are they?
2: Uh, Raquel Welch's bikini, like
1: cave girl bikini. I, that, is, that explains the two reasons right there.
2: Actually, yeah. She's, uh, she's both reasons, right? That's true. She's, she's the jugs and
1: speed of 1 million BC. It is some amazing cleavage. I mean, Harryhausen yeah. dinosaurs, who cares about those? Well,
2: me—that's the thing. It's a twofer. When I saw, I'm like, "Wait, Raquel Welch is in a movie about dinosaurs?" I was like seven years old. I'm like, ugh, wait, that can't." What? And then it, near the end of the movie, he's already got Raquel Welch, and so I'm really like, "I like that part of the movie too." And then suddenly, a pterodactyl just swoops down and grabs Raquel Welch and flies her off to a nest. And I remember thinking, "Oh, fuck, that could happen." That is- <laughs> you could have Raquel Welch and everything's going great and suddenly back then it's like something from there and I thought this isn't this is not a, like a survival. it's not like you you can't win against that there's no way it's like the ship of prometheus there's like there's no answer to it cuz it's like a bird in a faraway nest but he just like walks to the nest yeah and he
1: rescues her it's kind of lame yeah
2: it's super lame cuz she it's trying to feed Raquel Welch to the baby Pterodactyls, and there's no reason why it would be. It would take that long to do that, yeah, but like it should be horrifying. Meaning, yeah, she's just like writhing around, which is great. But like he just grabs her and they they run away, and then a volcano erupts, and then they walk around like at the end of the movie Volcano with with ashes on them. It's like the exact same ending as Volcano because they're all the same. They're all like covered in ash. And it's like, yeah, we're all the same now.
1: Anyway, that pterodactyl is my number two. So, Dingus, what what do we do with this? Is a pterodactyl a bird?
3: First of all, pterodactyls not a thing.
1: What? It's not even a bird. Then, if it's not a thing, Kelly, I doubt it's going to be a bird. It sounds like no, it's an animal.
3: It's It's not an animal. It's a genus. It's a genus, or you you could say it's a a family or suborder. But uh, pterodactyl was not a dinosaur. It wasn't even a flying reptile. Pterodactylus was a genus. I mean, I have to stand up for my kid on this. Uh, there's not you don't we don't we don't have pterodactyls. You might have uh, pteranodons or rhamphorhynchus or pachycolotus. Like you know. But it's like it's like saying, hey, remember when I owned uh, reptile? Hey, reptile that reptile thing. Uh, Reptiles a uh, uh, pterodactyl is not a thing. It's, wait, it's wait, a it's a, it's, it. it's a family <laughs> or a genus or something.
1: Remember well, when, when I, I owned reptile. Want- reptile- you don't Go know a reptile. Kelly Wand and I saw something carrying Raquel Welch off. Don't know what it was, but right. something I, carried her off.
2: I actually thought that that movie was historically accurate when I saw it. She was like, oh, Raquel Welch back then? Fuck yeah, that would have been so much better. And dinosaurs. Like, I was really bummed that I was born
1: so late. She would have that. made it worth it. I mean, I, that's the thing. Seeing that as a kid, I didn't realize how... Fine. I mean, she's. I, I was too young to appreciate the glory of Raquel Welch. But seeing that as an adult, really? I, watched this, I watched this last year. It, it is amazing. Like, the, the titillation factor in this movie oh, yeah. is still off the charts. It is amazing. Yeah. Like, what they had, yeah. they dressed her, oh, my God. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. So hot, yeah. Uh,
3: have it you guys watched 10,000 B.C.? The Roland Emmerich movie. The,
1: the, the, oh, she, uh. No, it's like Jack Black and Michael Sarah.
3: No, not that.
2: Is it the one where Sarah Sandra Bullock goes to rehab? Is it is it a prehistory movie, Dingus? Like with dinosaurs? Yeah, it's it's,
3: it's purporting to be a like uh a bunch of people um going after woolly mammoths. Cliff Curtis is in it. Um but it's it uh,
2: it's,
3: it's Roland Emmerich trying to make uh, a prehistoric epic, and it's Ew. just awful, awful, awful. But when you were talking about one million B- people, pay- well, I could think it was 10,000
1: BC. I mean, well, really, 10, yeah, to make a dinosaur movie like that work, you just need Raquel Welch in the proper attire yeah. in your set. Yeah. You don't even really need to put the dinosaurs in it.
2: I like, too, that it was the exact year 1 million B.C. Like all the characters just <laughs> called it that. Like, yep. 1 million years to go. <laughs> Kill Welch. All right, dig a second
1: favorite bird in
3: a movie. All right, my second favorite bird in a movie is Mordecai from Royal Tenenbaums. Hmm. Do you guys remember that bird? Of course. He wore a hat and everything. Uh. And apparently, during the filming of the movie, the bird was actually uh, kidnapped. What? And yeah, the, that's sort of the lore of the movie that the bird was kidnapped during the movie, during the filming of the movie, and they had to use a different bird. And so he looks different. And when he comes back at the end of the movie, when they're on the roof, um, Luke Wilson's in Lavencher is, is him? He looks right. different. Uh, and. Uh, and there's this explanation of, you know, sometimes when they go through stress, their feathers change color, like, like you know, Bride of Frankenstein kind of a thing. Um, but I love the way Mordecai is used in that movie.
2: So in the shoot for Royal Tannenbobs, that bird was the Raquel Welch, and it got souped up.
3: Right. <laughs> Very good.
1: Yeah. Uh, the thing is, did they ever get their the original bird back? Like, did they, it, they lost a bird shooting it, Royal Tenenbaums? Did it get uh,
3: I, I don't think they – I think that's sort of a bit of lore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the bird was returned. Um, uh, but uh,
2: take it with but, a grain of growl.
3: I think, I think they probably just had to switch out birds because the shoot.
1: Okay. They I'm glad let, we didn't get another story like the one about the dog locked in the Land Rover. Right.
2: Uh, ben, Benji's a good name for a dog.
1: My favorite bird in a movie, of all movies, Uh, I was thinking of scenes where birds get trapped indoors, uh, and somebody has to let them out. And my favorite of those (laughs) scenes is at the end of Remains of the Day, when Christopher Reeves is is moving into the the manor that Anthony Hopkins is the butler and his previous – what do you call a butler's boss? Master? Boss? Lord? Lord. I guess so. Uh, that guy's sort of been run out and disgraced, and he has to leave the manor. And so when Christopher Reeve, as this good-natured but very American fella, is moving in, uh, Anthony Hopkins is now his butler. And while they're looking around the house, uh, a pigeon falls into the the through the, the 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 chimney up into a fireplace, and they have to get the, the you know the birds flying around in there and. You know, Anthony Hopkins is this very proper butler, and he's a little flustered that there's a bird in his house, and he doesn't quite know how to get it out. And eventually, they shoo it out, uh, and there's a shot from above the window shot down of Christopher Reeve. He's grabbed the bird, and he throws it loose, and Anthony Hopkins sort of sits there and watches it fly away, and James Ivory shoots it from the top down. And what I'd forgotten is that the final shot of Remains of the Day is from the perspective of the bird – Uh, It's a helicopter shot of the estate, Um, and it starts close on the window, and it pulls out and out and goes up, and it's like the bird flying away. We're seeing the perspective of the bird leaving the manor, Uh, and I didn't remember that shot. I didn't remember that that was how it ended. I remembered there was a bird that got trapped. Uh, I remembered that they they let it loose. That was going to be, you know, that was in there as a metaphor for some reason. But I didn't remember that that was the final image: is the bird flying away from the manor. Probably a reference to Emmett Thompson's character sort of getting away from this life, and Anthony Hopkins just remaining in the manor watching her go. Uh, so I love that poor little pigeon who's a metaphor at the end of uh, Remains of the Day.
2: I predict Tom's number
1: one is the eagles from Battle of the Five Armies. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I that, already, that was my number one. I just did three birds, Kelly Wand. Uh, my number zero. The and then Dingus is like, the
2: army's not a genus! <laughs>
1: Well, Kelly One, what's your example of a favorite bird in a movie?
2: Uh, the uh,
1: most favorite, by the way. The number one pick.
2: Yeah, it's a tough choice between the one Save on- your runners up. Save your runners up. All right, on. all
1: right, all right. Well, remind me okay.
2: to say what to say something
1: later. Okay, I'm making a note right here. <laughs> Kelly's runner up. <laughs> uh, I don't trust remind you. me to say something later. I like that.
2: Um, in the motion picture, Return of the Pink Panther... There's a scene where Peter Sellers has this vacuum cleaner and it goes haywire and it like sucks his head in and it takes off part of his mustache. But there's also a a canary that's like been making fun of him for the whole scene and like laughing at his mustache. And then there's you hear like a swoop. And then you look at the birdcage, and the bars are bent, and it's like the vacuum cleaner sucked the bird. (laughs) I remember that shot. Yeah. I remember seeing it as a kid and being horrified. (laughs) I'm horrified even hearing you talk about it right now. Yeah. I'm like, that's – like, why would you want that appliance? (laughs) That's horrifying. (laughs) It's like a super weapon. (laughs) Vacuums. Yeah. It should be licensed and regulated. Yeah, but then at the end, the bird comes out of the vacuum cleaner. What? <sighs> he, when he takes his set off, he finally gets the vacuum cleaner off, and his mustache is sagging, and his brains have been sucked out of his ears, and his hair is all tweaked, because I think he got electrocuted, too, or something. And then the bird just, like, peeps and comes out.
3: Kind of, <laughs> okay, the bird's all right. So oh. there's the bird's, bird's redemption. Fine. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: So it was a deus ex canaria. All right, Dingus, that leaves us with your favorite bird in all of moviedom. I hate you. Why do you hate me? No, second myself. Uh, okay. All
3: right, mine's a, mine's a dark one. It's uh, the... Maltese uh,
1: Oh, what? Because it's it said Maltese Falcon, he was guessing.
3: Hmm. It's not Maltese Falcon. That's not a bird.
1: It's
2: a
3: statue, Kelly One, not a it's real bird. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's, a
2: it's a pterodactyl, right. Yeah, it's a pterodactyl. Okay.
3: It's a brontosaurus. All right, so uh, this is um, from 28 Days Later, and this is the uh, crow. That,
1: that bird is, is a jerk.
3: It is a total jerk bird um, that's pecking at the corpse that eventually infects, or eventually quickly infects Brendan Gleason's character. Uh um, oh,
2: change oh, I, I my number I just, one now.
3: I just love that the birds are still flying around and doing all this stuff and apparently they're not turned into zombie birds. Uh but that particular bird, uh I don't know, I couldn't get away from it. I love that um I love the way that uh Brenda reacts to it. It's like get, like I think he's like, get off it. And he, and he kicks the thing, and then the um, the blood falls down into his eye because this bird is pecking at this corpse uh, up at the top of this uh, up at the top of this structure. And so that's one. Of, that's my favorite bird thing.
1: I don't like that bird at all. Wouldn't make my list. I don't like him. I don't like the bird either. But I like that moment. Well, he's apparently like. your favorite bird of all in all of movie dum He's better yeah, than true. Mordecai and Royal Tenenbaums. That's true, actually.
2: He just hated that character. That's the bird's point of view.
1: Maybe we could get – yeah, it's too bad that John Turturro didn't club that bird instead of some hapless penguins. No. Tom. What? I'm just calling it like I see it. Huh? huh? Wow. Dingus, what readers what, – what birds have the readers chosen as their favorites? All right, so
3: we first have Paul Weimer who says, hope these choices of favorite birds don't ruffle – Dingus' Feathers.
1: Number three,
3: in Maleficent. Did either
1: of you see Maleficent? That's a Disney princess movie with music. I don't don't.
2: see movies about monarchs that don't exist.
1: And I don't like musicals. Isn't it a musical?
3: Who knows? Uh, uh, Paul Weimer, number three, in Maleficent, Diavol. Is an ordinary raven who is occasionally turned back and forth between his winged shape and a quasi human form, played by Sam Riley, by Angelina Jolie's titular character as needed.
2: Stop saying Angelina Jolie's titular.
3: <laughs> um, Paul Weemer's number two. In Lady Hawk, uh, Isabeau, Michelle Pfeiffer, is cursed. From sunrise to sunset, and taking the form of a beautiful red-tailed hawk who stays near the man he loves. Etienne, played by Rucker Hauer. Sadly, he is similarly cursed to be a wolf at night while she is human.
1: Are all of Paul Weimer's picks lycanthrops?
3: Uh, I don't know. It depends what Ice Pirates is about. All right. Let's find out. Polymer's number one, Ice Pirates. Uh, Angelica Houston's Maida demands and gets an apology from a fellow pirate for an insult. The pirate's parrot snarkily comments, don't believe him, he's lying.
2: It's like Chuck and Bob on soap, huh? <laughs> wow! <laughs> this is
3: obscure. Um, next we have Ian Slutz. Uh... First attempt at 3x3, three three, but only one real bird. All right, Ian, be careful. It's going to be an important um, one. The Drinking Bird Novelty and Alien.
1: Ah. Like, they oh. still have those in the future. It's like, yeah, uh-huh. they still got these goofy things. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. <gasps> dingus! Come on, Dingus. Oh, oh okay. okay. All right. Sorry. It's a the little... They have a little feather. It's like a there's like a liquid in the base of it that keeps it rocking back and forth. So oh, like that's pecking at a drink of water or something. Like Uh-oh. those things aren't around anymore, right? Like it was obviously something. I remember seeing them as a kid. You know, Alien came out in '79, so it was something that was around there. But unfortunately, Ridley Scott's vision did not come true. They haven't endured.
2: I don't see any. I'm really of those. curious which which alien character's bird that was.
1: Like, yeah, who put that? Who brought that on the
2: ship? It's like I'm going to put this
1: here. Yeah. Is it so one of those
2: desk, desktop things like the like the
3: those cracking ball? It's thing. one in
2: Darkman. It's one in Darkman that that causes the explosion. Oh, I Kelly. I that, man. It's the same kind of thing.
1: But yeah, it's it's in the early shot of the ship. It's just showing like movement around the ship, even though everybody's asleep. Like there's an air duct that blows paper or something. It's these yeah. eerie bits of movement in this still empty spaceship that that sets the scene. Uh, all right. Okay.
2: It's good. It's it it's a creepy touch because yeah. it implies it does suggest something like we're far away from home and here's a non living pet for Jonesy to torture.
0: What did the cat
2: of that? Right. <laughs>
3: all right. Uh, yeah, so uh, Ian Slatsy seems to say exactly what you guys are talking about. This is the aliens' way of telling viewers that people of the future aren't that different from viewers themselves. So it's the drinking bird novelty toy, he says. All right, just fine. like
2: alien, it's our alien. All
3: right. All right. So his next one is the CG owl in labyrinth. Ah, Boobo. I uh, took my daughter to see the theaters as part of the 30th anniversary. I had totally forgotten that the movie opens with a crude CGI
1: owl. I don't remember that either. Wait, he, he thinks that there was CG in the movie Labyrinth? Yeah, apparently. I, I guess Donally. people these days just call CG, like, special effects CG. I mean, yeah. that, that's true. Even if it's like a, a,
3: a like puppet subject. or something. Yeah. Uh, the contrast closet. between this clumsy computer animation and Jim Henson's work in the rest of the movie. So I think he does know. All right, oh. um, he uh, uh, is a real jarring experience. All th- at the time, it was probably meant to be cool, but Jim Henson was at his peak, and his creatures have a kind of verisimilitude that can't be denied. Now the contrast between that opening of the rest and the rest seems to underscore what he had achieved with his techniques and creatures.
1: We know anybody that
2: we're really good CG.
1: Yeah, dude. anybody who uses the word verisimilitude, I'm gonna to have to take his word for it that it's CG. So I think he yeah. proved it wrong. Yeah, All right. See, uh, so wow, finally, I, guess, I mean, it was after Tron, wasn't it? Like Tron was the first big. Ooh, we d- we're doing computers to make the special effects.
3: Well, he uh, Ian says it's in 1986 when was Tron.
1: Oh, good 82. Lord. 82. Or Pretty. 80... Yeah, yeah. 86 right. or 96. Oh boy. No, did what? he say uh, Labyrinth was 86 or 96? He says
3: it's 86, yeah.
1: That's, yeah. He's that was probably, your gremlins.
3: Yeah. Pretty interesting. Uh, and Ian, Ian's last one is the blood-dropping crow in oh, 28 Days Later. Oh, right. he stole it off
1: of you, dingus. He ripped off yeah. it. He copied your homework.
3: When Brendan when Gleason looks up at a feeding crow in days later, an errant bit of blood lands in his eye and spells the end for his character. Thematically, it closes the warmer portion of the film, which started when the survivors met up with Megan Burns and himself. However, I also appreciate it because it keeps a sense of sciencey stuff in the film. Some infectious diseases can be very challenging to control, and this vector infection helps things feel grounded, much better than the way *Walking Dead* sabotages its mood by allowing people to wear zombie guts in season one and season, and
2: season six, and Three. throughout
3: *Fear the Walking Dead*. So, you guys, you you two will *Walking Dead* apologists over here,
1: <clears throat> or not? <laughs> You you two are totally, totally love Walking Dead. Dingus thinks anybody who watches Walking Dead is a Walking Dead apologist, and he – in fact, he might be right. I stopped
2: watching it, and Tom thinks it's retarded. (laughs) But
1: But I still still watch watch
2: it. it. But still watch
1: Uh, it. Also, Ian used the word vector, referring to disease. I think he's way smarter than us, so I'm definitely believing his whole CG thing about Labyrinth.
3: I I also love – I love that he brings that up because there's a there was an alternate ending. I remember watching through uh, so much of the DVD of Twenty Eight Days Later. Um, there there was this alternate ending that they had sort of storyboarded out, where they took Brendan Gleeson's body and emptied oh, right. of all of its <laughs> fluids and like transfused new blood into it, uh, so that he could be regenerated and. And saved as if what? you can, yeah, as if you can take uh, it, because it, it, as if you could somehow save him that way. And, and what Denny Boyle Why had def- to say, everybody, yeah, well, it, it's also the fact that you can't do that. That's not the way that blood and fluid works. Um, but it, it was a cute, uh, it was a cute writer idea, and that they eventually had to abandon. It definitely doesn't qualify as science bits. Yeah, exactly right. All right now we have Arthur Giovangeli. Uh you like man. that, Kelly Wand?
2: Yeah, that's good. Crystal.
3: Right. So Arthur says, number three, the prestige.
1: Oh, uh, mm-hmm. oh this is terrible. Birds get it rough.
2: Yeah. Uh, Oz is great and powerful. He kills one of his birds, too. He like, shoots one out to decoy, distract one of them. Like,
3: uh, so, Arthur's number three, The Prestige, the various birds that are used for magic tricks, some of which are crushed to death in cages. The pair of birds that are used in a show where Christian Bale meets Rebecca Hall stand out the
1: most, if I had to be specific.
3: But what crushed about them. his brother?
1: <laughs> the little kid says that. I was doing an impression of the little English kid. I like this. I totally forgot those little birds. Oh, man, Arthur. It's nice, And it's a clue, too, to the, the, the key – it's sort of like a little early clue to the solution of the movie, isn't it? Wait, what? He uses identical birds, and he'll kill one of them. And, there's, and we later find out that Christian Bale and his uh, identical brother uh, – and the little kid says, but what about his brother? Because he sees the bird. He knows it's not the same bird. They're using right. identical birds. They're killing one of them. Uh, and that's how Christian Bale – I don't think we know this at this point. That's how he's doing his magic trick is he has an identical brother. Uh,
3: but is, uh one of them have their wing cut off?
1: Oh, Dingus, why are you making it all dark again?
2: Sorry uh, about that.
1: I just introduced right. a precocious adorable child, and you made it dark.
2: I, I Let's talk about you. Woodstock. Arthur's number
3: two. Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Oh, my God. The eagles that come oh to God.
2: the
1: rescue of everyone. Oh, my God. Frankly, they're way be- better in the Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies when they arrive to oh, us. Uh, Tom, the, they're in Hobbit. Army. Hobbit evangelist, Tom. Well, no, just the third movie. Just the third movie.
3: That's the only one I think you acknowledge as a movie.
1: Really, the other two aren't canon. The other two are uh, Peter Jackson retconning. There's no canon in that battle.
3: So Arthur says, um, the eagles that come to the rescue of everyone, Frodo and Sam in particular, they might create massive plot issues, but I don't care. Because I love seeing a giant eagle flying a Nazgul, or fighting a Nazgul, and swooping in to save the heroic hobbits.
1: Well, why isn't he watching Battle of Five Armies instead? If you want to see eagles and – wait, are there Nazgul in that? Never mind. I take that back. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. They're
2: preschool. Yeah.
1: Um, So Arthur's
3: number one is Mars Attacks. What? Hmm. After the humans try to use their faulty translation devices to interpret the Martian speech, they draw the false conclusion that the Martians have come in peace. A hippie is elated to hear this and releases a dove, (laughs) (laughs) which the Martians instantly kill, (laughs) along with every other earthling in the area. The humans blame the violence. And the Dove and trying to negotiate with the Martians again, and it goes just as well as the first time. I love watching the Dove
2: get fried.
3: It's really funny.
2: Arthur. Those are the earlier, funnier parts of Mars Attacks. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of funny parts. You can't say that about much, Burton. <laughs>
3: um, Alright, next we have Chris Webb again. Thank you, Chris Webb for writing in about the movie as well. Uh, Chris Webb, number three, Tom's description of the seagull in The Shallows.
1: Oh, my God. I had – oh, shoot. I meant to pick the stupid seagull. Dang it, we need to back up. I need to redo my list.
3: What's The Shallows? Is that the one where the woman's, like, stuck
1: with the shark? Yeah, it's where Daniel Van Kirk doing his Mark Wahlberg impression says it's the movie where the woman annoys the shark for 90 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's so, a Blake Lively trapped on a, a rock outcropping and a shark swimming around her. And because that would make for a boring movie, uh, there's a seagull with a broken wing because you can't – you know, you have to have a reason for the seagull to stay there because as Kelly Wand noted when he got attacked, seagulls don't tend to stick around. They leave. They got other things to do. So there's a seagull with a broken wing on the rock with her, uh, and I think she calls him Stephen. Stephen. I don't know if that's – yeah, she makes the joke. She names him Steven Siegel. Uh, Isn't Jonathan? No, that's way too retro, Kelly Wan. This is is a movie for the younger generation. Uh, And she – it's because you can't just have someone on a rock not say anything. She needs someone to talk to. So this is how the screenwriter – I don't know if Juan Calet Sera wrote this, but he directed it. But it's how he gives us – it's how he gives Blake Lively a reason to talk. Uh, Which, frankly, is this movie, it's kind of like with Raquel Welch in 10,000 B.C., she doesn't need to talk in this movie. Oh my god, she looks so awesome! And there's a lot. If you like Blake Lively in bikinis and like skin tight, thin wetsuits, this is the movie to see. She's no Raquel though. Hmm. In a different way, she is. But so the, the seagull. She names her the her thing, thing Steven. I think so. Yeah, in talking to it, she's like, "I'm going to call you then. Steven Seagal." Yeah, it's, like uh, it's
2: kind of cute.
3: So in the future, when Kelly Wand refers to this movie, he'll just call him Steve. Yeah. Why Why will you call it Steve, Kelly Wand?
2: Like Jack and Steve.
3: Yeah, Jack and Steve.
2: Yeah, Master and Commander.
1: It's about Jack and Steve. Oh, from last week. Yeah, right. Exactly. And dude.
3: Chris Webb uh, says that uh, it's your description that he's choosing, and he says after that, I almost want to see it. So uh, (laughs) apparently
0: (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> uh, just
1: going. I don't want to spoil anything, but the the, uh, the seagull doesn't die. Really? Mm. Yep. Not that kind of movie, Kelly Wand.
2: Does she die?
1: She does not die. The shark dies, and I think I've mentioned this before. His death would be suitable for a Roadrunner cartoon. <laughs> uh,
2: so like Jaws? No, not at all like Jaws. Jaws, the shark's kind of like Wile Coyote at the end of Jaws.
1: No, nah, nah, it would be like, well... Or Jaws 2 is more. That's the, I guess, Bat yeah, like if, if you were to have Wile Coyote like smoking an explosive cigar, he would blow up. Is the shark in the third movie's name Jaws 3D? The sharks aren't named Jaws, stop it. You know that, is Kelly Jaws well.
2: the revenge, is that that shark's name?
1: The revenge? Kelly, well, we were just doing lines from Jaws. I don't believe for a moment. You're just doing this to rile me up and it's not going to work. Huh? Wow! What?
3: But Chris Webb's number two is Kara Hayward in Moonrise Kingdom.
1: Oh, good one.
3: That is a really good one, actually. Uh, what kind of bird are you? Mm-hmm. That's very good.
2: She's a lamprel. Uh,
3: the following does not apply to.
1: Lamprel? <laughs> what?
2: Yeah, what? she's an Indonesian lamprel. Is that a an <laughs> answer?
1: Do you think a lamprel is a bird? Yeah. The okay.
2: they're going extinct. That dentist shot one
1: in Africa, and he got hate-smeared. Oh, wait, I'm, I didn't know. I, a lamprey isn't a lamprey?
3: Yeah, no. I thought lampre- I thought he was talking about lamprey, too.
2: No, that's an eel. Yeah. lamprey. Are
3: you just making that up? What? No. Huh? Huh?
1: What? Ugh. This... Who on this podcast would most qualify to be an ornithologist? I'm just wondering. Um, Kelly, if a a lamprel is really a kind of bird, I'm going to nominate you. Lamprel. Ornithology? What's this got to do with bugs? Chris Webb's number one
3: is the robins in blue velvet.
0: Hmm.
3: I love Laura Dern's description of a dream in which Robins will surround the world with love and drive away the darkness. At the end of the movie, this dream seemingly comes true with the arrival of some very artificial-looking birds, one of which holds a bug in its mouth. An old lady chimes in with, I don't see how they could do that. I never could eat a bug. What? Is she dumb? don't. He could be making all of this up, but I love it. Next, we have Chris Marketson. Hey, guys. As I'm sure you guys know, there are quite a few birds of note in anime. Unfortunately, I decided I wouldn't choose any anime birds for my picks. Probably because I'm reading them. Thanks, Chris. Uh Do you want to three read for them? Chris Markinson? No, I don't want to. I want you to. Yeah, anytime anime is for Kelly Wan to read. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Chris guess, is number yeah. three. Howard the Duck from the after-credits scene in Guardians of the
2: Galaxy. Oh,
1: my God. No, he's oh, my probably us! <laughs> wait, I like that one.
2: I like that Easter egg. I got kind of excited by it. Because uh, I, I get excited by the Easter eggs I know. Like, oh, wait, it's Howard the Duck. As opposed to the cosmic whatever, some stupid artifact, it's CG.
3: Uh, I tuned so, out after Leica. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Chris Markinson's number two. I suspect that this will have been chosen by someone already, but the hawk and lady hawk turns into Michelle Pfeiffer, which is more than good enough to make my list.
1: That is a pretty cool thing for a bird to be able to do. Talk about (laughs) plumage.
3: And Chris Markinson's number one. I know that ideally the bird should be alive, but I'm choosing Petey from Dumb and Dumber. While Petey gets his head ripped off, Jim Carrey's character tapes it back on and sells it to Billy,
2: the blind
3: kid from 4C who doesn't realize that the bird is dead.
2: What? Pretty bird. Are you quoting that movie, Kelly? Yeah, that's what the kid says. He's petting it. Pretty bird. (laughs) And it has it like taped on its neck. So you and Chris
3: have both seen Dumb and Dumber. You can quote it. All right. You two are here. birds of a feather. PD. So Chris says Happy New Year, guys. Chris, uh, dumb and dumber, but you got Kelly Wan to chirp in, so well done.
2: Oh, I like you.
3: <laughs> Finally, we have Aaron Vaughn. Uh, who also, uh, I should say, I forgot to I forgot to do this when I was talking about listener submissions. Um, Aaron really liked uh, the dynamic in the restaurant scene um, and uh, liked bird. the movie altogether uh, as far as I'm like, but I forgot to chime that in. Sorry, Aaron. So Aaron's, uh, so why is Dingus so fascinated with birds again? Here's three I like, too lazy to actually name the birds in my pick. Number three, Arrival. I really didn't care for this movie. Ah. Uh, it's a good one.
1: No, it's but not. I love the why.
3: idea that the team resorts to bringing live birds for determining whether the atmosphere in the alien craft is deadly. But instead of coal miners, it's two nerds and the military talking to tall elephants.
1: Uh, it's not good because it's straight out of Close Encounters where it was done better. Yeah.
2: I thought they were doing that for multiple reasons though and they were just showing the aliens like a different organism that's dumber and makes noise and like seems I didn't weird.
3: understand I, I mean I liked the visual of it but yeah I didn't understand why we don't have any technology that's right. more appropriate than a bird in a cage. That It's never the sort of thing that thing.
1: Richard Dreyfus would put in the back of his car in order to test whether or not the military's lying. Like that – the whole right. gag, the whole thing in Close Encounters, he doesn't have any way of knowing whether there's poison in the air. So this is what a normal civilian would do, and when then the government guys show him the dead bird, they're like, wow, those jerks really killed the bird to show him, yeah, there's poison. You better get out of here. Uh, so yeah, when they're bringing it in with all the equipment, it's like really? A bird. That's why yeah. I, I, it, I did.
2: I liked it though when she's trying to communicate with the aliens, and the bird keeps chirping in the background. And it's like, well,
1: I mean, I do think it's just uh, Villeneuve probably just is like, yeah, it's a cool visual touch, and that yeah. I agree with. But it's as far as like, touch too. yeah, but as far yeah, right, exactly. But as far as adding any sort of plausibility, or it just seemed a little silly to me, and I thought, oh yeah, it was cool in Close Encounters. Does it
2: survive the? Uh,
1: no incident?
2: spoiler. Uh, why does so the aliens don't care about the bird? Nope, what dicks. I know. All right. All right. <laughs> I liked I liked Arrival
3: a lot, but that that thing, well, it was it was just a cool little uh, cool little visual, but it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No.
2: Uh, Aaron, okay, I just imbued um, it with sense. What did you say? I imbued it with what I considered sense. Yeah. Right. I didn't even think of close encounters because well, yeah, you know, they have machines, so obviously the birds there to see if they respond to its Twitters or something.
1: Twitter. <laughs> you can't use that <laughs> word anymore, Kelly Wand. No, fuck in, in that. I'm taking
2: speech. the word back. That's so stupid. <laughs> a, it's called a tweet, and it's called Twitter, and then that's a
1: verb, a tweet. Ugh, fuck that shit.
2: So were the, birds, playing that game.
1: were the birds in Arrival when they were making noise? Would you characterize that noise as tweets?
2: Yeah.
1: You're out of touch, Kelly Wand. Oh. Well, yeah, that's been
2: demonstrated. <laughs>
3: Chips. Aaron Vaughn's number two is The Prestige. Hmm.
1: What about his baby brother?
3: <laughs> really good at doing that. Pretty uh, bird. Aaron, Aaron Vaughn's number one is Upstream Color.
1: See, I, I, geez, why would – wow, good catch, Aaron Vaughn. I almost picked that one. I was like, yeah, nobody's going to know that one. That's just weird and obscure. Wait, that makes his, quote, good, though. his quote from it is, they could be starlings. Uh, one of my favorite
3: parts of growing up in the Midwest is the flock of blackbirds moving off trees in a shifty mass. This is my first thought for birds and movies. The couple's memories being transient with this line repeating. Well, they, it's interesting that he, cho- he chooses this because, uh, one of my runners up is along those lines. It's not upstream color, but it's along those lines. It's that murmuration. Um, Anyway, really quick – this is uh, back to Aaron Vaughn. Really quick, there's a video game called Shadow of the Colossus, which I wanted to mention, since it uses birds to give the creatures you kill such a great sense of scale. I wish it were a movie, but as a game, it's disqualified.
1: But it's in the movie uh, Rain Over Me. uh, with Adam Adam Sandler plays it a lot in that movie. So there you go, Aaron Vaughn. There's a terrible game. Yeah, there's a terrible Mike Binder movie called Rain Over Me, which I think it's, it's – if I recall, it's just 9-11 grief porn, uh, and Adam Sandler's character plays a video game called uh, Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, it's, somebody apparently showed it to Mike Binder, and he's like, oh, that's cool. Let's have Adam Sandler's character play it. it they try to make some tortured point with it that I don't think works. Hmm. Hmm. How about that? Wait, yeah,
2: does it work as porn, though? <laughs> Shut yeah, up, is, Kelly.
3: Is the Rain Over Me – Movie is that with
1: um, Don Cheadle?
2: Yep, yep.
1: All he right. plays a magical Negro, if I'm not mistaken, and not <laughs> not, not literally in, in the plot in the pl- uh, weak plotting sense. All right.
2: He's my favorite Black Iron Man. <laughs> he's not Iron Man. He's War Machine. All, yeah. right.
3: All caps.
1: <laughs> uh. Uh, all right, so do you guys have any uh, runners up that's all? I'm going to do a line from one, and it's going to be another impression. I'm really good at these, so here's another one. Do you like our owl? Oh, <laughs> uh, it doesn't count. That's not Why a not? bird. Why not? It's a robot. Of the it's not a robot. It's a replicant. No, wait, what do they call them?
0: Shoot.
1: Uh, yeah, oh, replicants. Yeah. I, I confuse alien and Blade Runner sometimes. There's artificial persons in alien, replicants in Blade Runner. But yeah, it's a, it's a replicant bird.
3: All right, so when we do our favorite reptiles, I'm going to bring up
1: that too. Oh, the sna- Well, you uh, don't see this. Oh, you do see the Zora's snake. That's right. Very good, Yes. Yeah. yeah. But can you do an impression of Joanna Cassidy mentioning the snake? I'd like to hear that.
3: No, but I, I will uh, delight to hear you do uh, Harrison Ford doing his uh, government agent, dude.
2: Government agent? Tell him I'm eating. Uh, <laughs> now, no, when he wears the glasses.
3: Like uh, you know, a lot of guys, you know, trying to take a look at uh, <laughs> girls getting
1: undressed. That yeah. right there, I think, is Harrison Ford. That—that's the most he has ever stretched himself in a performance. Is that's right when he's in disguise <laughs> trying to trick Zora. I forgot about that little bit of acting. That's great work for him. That's his. where he wasn't acting. <laughs> okay. Uh. uh Renner, yeah. Go ahead, Kelly. One. Uh, uh. That.
2: The bird. I think it's a crow. An Excalibur where he that <laughs> dude's eye. Yeah,
1: they had they had to set they set up this whole effect of it plucking an eye out of a corpse. Uh, I think yeah. it's a real bird. Which no, it's a real bird. To... Yeah, yeah. You can sort of. I, I watch that scene and wonder how, like, how many times how do they you have they to shoot it? that the bird actually yank the eyeball out of the fake corpse? Yeah. What yeah, they
2: put they put some bacon in the eye. Right. <laughs> exactly. How
1: Because did... birds <laughs> love bacon. Birds love
2: bacon. <laughs> they put a worm in the guy's eye socket. I...
1: I guess you've uh, probably got some runners up from like Rushmore or something. uh
2: I love
3: the birds in take shelter, like have you ever seen birds do that?
1: Uh, oh yeah, yeah, right that's because I was trying to think of, yeah, like shots of birds flocking and stuff, yeah,
3: so you've that whole murmuration thing, you know, the birds flying together um there's also I had a favorite movie of mine from last year. Uh, called Two Step, which is this little uh, thriller from Texas, where where the director is constantly using birds on on the wires up there. Um, and then there's and there's this weird thing that uh, Capra does with It's a Wonderful Life, um, where he has this raven that I think he uses in most of his movies, uh, but with Uncle Billy, this he just has this raven that's. Or crow, and I think it's a raven um, that's with him all the time. It's weird, but I, I like that. But but I I couldn't pick it for this because it just it just seems like it seems self indulgent.
1: Kelly, one well, that's creepy when you make that reference.
2: What? It's uh, she's it's, I'm I was that age once, so
1: <laughs> okay, it's legal.
2: That's the way I see it.
1: That's all I've got. All right, are you guys ready for next week's 3x3 then? Oh! No. So it's going to be relatively easy because we've kind of done it before, but we're doing the opposite of it. Wait, and are we doing gonna... it next week or the week after? Oh, right, right. Very good, dingus. This will be two weeks from now because next week we're going to talk about uh, our ten favorite movies of 2016 uh, rather than go long and force you in... and We're not doing a 3x3 at the end of it. So this will be two weeks from now. Uh, so you've got two weeks to write in with your pick of the worst opening shots in movies. Now, we did a best opening shot, but I want your examples of worst opening shots. Uh, I love and, it. And not to say worst, but just something you don't like, something you think doesn't work. Like, I don't expect you to have actually seen the actual worst opening shot of a movie. With any luck, we've all avoided those. Uh, but just give me an example of a terrible opening shot, why you think it doesn't work, what the problem is with it. Uh, we will do that in two weeks. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Christian Mliskloski. It's Christian Muraski. And also,
2: Kelly Wand I thought of a cool ending for The Shining It's that uh, his book turns out to be a huge bestseller
0: Brazil Where hearts were entertaining June We stood beneath an amber moon
2: Uh, You know, what Vin Diesel really should do is discuss uh, movies where it wasn't someone's choice to make.
0: I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to
2: make! Uh, That's not the one I was talking about, though.
3: You don't think my joke was funny. (laughs) Well, look
2: what I'm working with.